This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Good morning, everybody. Welcome to the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt here, your life coach, your guide on the side. Top of the morning to you. Happy Tuesday. Uh, it is Tuesday. Man. And you know, it's crazy because I leave for a day and then Donald Trump all of a sudden seems to be in more trouble. I do not know what it is. Wrong. Wrong. I'm telling you. But you can't even make a little comment to the Russian delegates. Come on. Just can't give a little top secret information without everybody freaking out. What's going on? We'll get to all that fun straight ahead. Plus, uh, today we're going to be talking about the state of residential solar power. Have you two uh, gotten into the solar power debate yet with your neighbors? No. I feel a commercial coming on here. It's a really great moment the minute (laughs) the guys start knocking your door and say, hey, we're doing solar panels. All your smart neighbors have them. And it's always one of your neighbors goes ahead and gets the panels yeah. and then they start, you know, blanketing your neighborhood right. and say, "Hey, look, they're right there." And and it's and it usually like really is the smartest guy in the neighborhood. Like the engineer. Sure. Cuz he's the one that figured out that, you know, I get enough sunlight that uh this yeah, is going to in about seven and a half years this will pay off. Yeah, pay it off in like 20 years. It's great. My brother has panels on his house. Does he? Yeah. I all my neighbors have them and I'm I didn't jump in. I'm not an early adopter. How but, how does it look? When it you looks, look at their house and it they looks have the trashy. panel, yeah, it looks. That's my problem. Is yeah. you put them, the, the you have to have it so that your the back of your house. That's my house. Is what faces my the sun. house is perfect for it. Yeah. It's perfect. It would be my. But here's the deal. Then you have to drill a lot of holes in your roof and, and put a lot of weight on your roof. Call yeah. me old fashioned, but I learned you're old fashioned. Okay, so call me that. You told me to do it, and I'm thinking. I don't want to drill a lot of holes in my roof. My roof's working perfect right now. Yeah. So, But it could work for you. That's what they say. Yeah. But then all of a sudden they start talking about the fact that we, in Utah we have to write like two checks. Yeah. So you still have to pay – you have to pay off your panels to one place. But then you have to write the check to the power company and the power company won't necessarily write you a check back. And they just – they'll credit you, but the credit isn't like an even credit and – And then if you go to sell your house, yeah, like the panels are a separate issue. You're and make, so the new yeah. homeowner has to come in and agree to take over the payments on the yeah. panels also or then you still owe yeah. on the panels that it's you're not 20, going to be using? It's a 20-year contract. <sighs> and I'm like, well, what if I'm not going to be in my house that long? Well, well the, the next just people, don't move. Just yeah. don't move. But for sure the next people would want them. I'm like, well, not if they're leaking. And <laughs> You know what I would be more likely to invest in since it's so windy in our uh, neighborhood? String cheese. No. Okay. Ooh, good guess. Like some of those wind turbines. Wind. <gasps> really? Yeah. Yeah, I'd love to see your neighbors after you put one of those up. <laughs> like the big, nice wind but turbine. But, I mean, you know, we may not want to capture the energy of the sun, but the energy of the wind. <sighs> mm. It reminds me of like a Disney song. Isn't there a song? Well, there's the colors of the wind uh, from yeah. Pocahontas. Yeah, it's bad. The wind is one thing, but when the wind is all colorful, mm. whole different thing. Whole different problem. So we're going to be talking about the state of residential solar power. By the way, it's it's actually it's taking off. Now, do you know we could just not put, put them on our houses, but instead let's just designate an area in the country yeah. 
and just put solar farms out there. Like the vast deserts of the West. It would have to be – exactly. It would have to be about the size of one of the Dakotas. No one's using Wyoming right now. Dakota Fanning? <laughs> Wyoming's open. But, you know, we really do have a lot. And I, I think a lot of farmers would be like, I'll, hey, yeah. it's easier than growing corn. Right. Once you get those panels up, you just sit and watch them and then, you know, bring, you know, every year bring in the, the baby calves and do the calving of the, <laughs> what? Of the solar power calving. <laughs> okay. I don't know. We'll get to that. Uh, fun straight ahead, of course, plus, uh, you know, other interesting empty news, we call it. But first, let's get to the headlines with Terry South. Terry, what's going on around the rest of the country we should be watching out for? Research at Symantec and Kapersky Lab. You may know those names because they come preloaded on your computer if you oh, buy Oh, yeah, one. those guys. They have discovered a potential link between North Korea and the WannaCry ransom virus that swept the world over the weekend. Code from an earlier version of the virus reportedly matches code from used by the Lazarus Group, which researchers believe to be a North Korean hacking group. Oh, boy. Could be the guys that broke into Sony a couple years ago, if you remember that. While the evidence is still too sparse to link WannaCry definitively to North Korea, the code is the best clue we have seen to date as the origins of WannaCry, Kapersky Lab's researcher, uh, reports. So the North Koreans. Yes, North Koreans. WannaCry has affected more than 300,000 computers since Friday, locking the machines until their owners pay a Bitcoin ransom, including the National Institute of, or the National Health System in London, a big Hold chunk it. of it. Did you hear about all this? Yeah, I did, but I all thought right. Symantec, I thought they were protecting us from anything like this. No, they're, well, yeah, but they have, uh, or they have like, uh, what do they call them? They have a huge... Like operations center where they watch the like the world networks and okay. see when things are happening and then try to try defend to, you yeah. against those. Sure, okay. And uh, the Kapersky lab they're located in Moscow, so keep that in mind. Huh. They're also kind of owned by certain governmental entities over there. Weird. Ford is announcing a plan to cut 10% of its global workforce later this week. The Wall Street Journal reports the Dearborn automaker has been under pressure both from its board of directors and from shareholders in recent days to show that its strategic plan for working as U.S. industry sales begin to decline for the first time in seven years. Mm. Ford's profits sank 35% during the first quarter to $1.6 billion as higher costs for warranties, recalls, and materials erode profits. Ford could outline the job cuts as early as this week. According to the journal, the cuts are said to largely target salaried employees. It's unclear if hourly factory workers are included in the cuts. Really? We'll see what happens okay. there. A pizza delivery man in Delaware got an order from an unusual ad- address, a stalled Amtrak train from New York on its way to Washington. Passenger uh, Mitchell Katz posted a video of a delivery man, Jim Leary, walking up to the train Sunday even uh, Sunday evening as it sat on the tracks. People on board were getting restless after being left without access to food or water during a long delay, and eventually some passengers came up with the idea to order a pizza. So, Larry, a driver for Dom's Pizza in Newport, Delaware. You ever try that one? No. It might be pretty good. I don't know. It tells the AP that he cut through a backyard, navigated a steep embankment, jumped over a water-filled ditch, all while balancing two pies in order to make the delivery. The uh, 46-year-old Larry was awarded with a cheering crowd of passengers and a total of $32 in tips for his effort. Wow. Leary's a – this is the, the thing that kind of caught me off guard. Leary, a 17-year pizza delivery career – driver has brought him to addresses in 32 counties across 18 states but he said a broken down train is definitely the strangest oh that's interesting 17 years he's been delivering pizza wow that's a lot of pizza pie yeah 
Man. Finally, hackers cl- uh, claim to have stolen the upcoming Pirates of the Caribbean film, or Caribbean, depending on your regional <laughs> choice of words. Or Pirates. Right. And are demanding that Disney pay a ransom or else they, they will release it online, according to The Hollywood Reporter. And, oh, those rude. And Deadline. When, uh, where, where there doesn't appear to be proof yet that the hackers actually have taken the movie, the series of events closely mirrors what happened a few weeks ago with Netflix, the Netflix show Orange is the New Black, where hackers held them at ransom. And they went ahead and released it online anyways. The hackers are demanding an enormous amount of money. According to Deadline, they're asking to be paid in Bitcoin, which would make it harder to trace. The reporters say that the hackers say that they would release increasingly long chunks of the movie if their demands are not met. Wow. Disney's reportedly refusing to pay, has begun working with the FBI. And, uh, yeah, that's the fifth entry to the Pirates series was supposed to be released on Friday. Well, have you seen the others? I think Disney's just saying, yeah, you can have it. (laughs) You've seen those, right? The same same stuff. There's dead pirates and, yeah. Is is the Kraken in this last one, too? I think it was only in part two. Yeah, it (sighs) it might have, like, Kraken Jr. I love the Kraken. we'll see what happens. I think it has Kraken Jack in it. Mm, I love Kraken Jack because there's that prize. Yeah. The bottom of the box. Mm. Kraken Jack. Hey, I don't know if you guys got to this while I was gone. Callista Gingrich. No. Will soon be named the ambassador to the Vatican. Wow! So she, now is she, she qualified? Do you need oh, to be for qualified? Sure. sure. Oh yeah. Yeah. I mean, a lot of those appointees across multiple presidencies are. Yeah. How much money did you donate? Yeah. You get to go to Sweden. Yeah. It's just. Whatever. But this is a big one. You get to go to the Vatican, hang out with the Pope. You're the representative well, you to the Vatican. You don't hang out with the Pope. You he, just, has, he has people. No, you I talk I'm sure to. you do tea. Really? Yeah. Tea with the Pope. Mm-hmm. Huh. Pope T. And uh, time's just a ticking away. Um, I so um, I don't I don't know if you guys heard, but I had another attack of the gallbladder. Mm. And while I was down, I found this really great thing that I bought online. This better not be another a, fidget toy. A new gallbladder? No, oh. I, I wish. <laughs> they just have them right there. Hey, wholesale. Two for one. In fact, do either of you need a gallbladder? They cut out the middleman, literally. They really did. Um, No, it's called an anxiety blanket. Is it like a Snuggie? Yeah. It's an an anti-anxiety blanket. So So food or something on it? No, 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 no. Did you join a cult? No, no, I didn't. 18% of the American population suffers from anxiety. And listen to this. In response to the troubling statistic... A company now um, is, has found out that you they've got basically what they call the gravity blanket, mm-hmm. claims to use 10% of your body weight to mimic the effects of being hugged or held. Mm-hmm. And it relaxes your nervous system Sounds to hot. help you drift off. Uncomfortably hot. The response to the $169 duvet, it's a duvet uh, that has a Kickstarter ad now out there. It's raised $2.7 million. Oh, so it's not a real thing. It's a Kickstarter. It's a Kickstarter, but it's a total real thing. Okay. Some of that stuff never actually happens. But then, like, your but question. But they do collect the money. But what if I overheat? Yes. Will it feel like that old dude in the crucible who gets pressed to death, huh. but wetter? No. The sweaty Betty, uh, who's who read Arthur, who's... Red Arthur Miller asked, you won't uh, – because the high-density pellets – so these blankets have high-density pellets in them. And um, they they actually will – I guess they're breathable. They don't just keep creating more and more heat on you. They eventually kind of wick away the heat. Really? Yeah. 
You know, a so week a blanket. A week and a half is long enough to uh, get pulled in by a cult. And you're trying to tell us to get solar panels and a snuggie. So I'm just saying. Well, I'm just saying when you have a lot of time on the couch and you're thinking, boy, there's got to be a, a better blanket system. I feel mm. or like in the middle of the day when you're like, and you guys, I know you guys have felt this way. Hey, I just need a hug. Mm. Like, boy, I just need a hug today. Mm. But no one's there to hug you. Well, right. now you have a huggy blankie. That with little pellets in it, and it. See, it, I don't know. My, I it don't mind. It creates the, a weight, and it kind of envelops you. The the occasional hug is fine. The warm hug is eh. really. That's only for like snowmen. Other than that, really, there's lines that are being crossed. And a blanket that says it won't make you hot mm-hmm. is going to make me hot. I just know it. Well, that's but maybe it so. Maybe it's not about the blanket anymore. Maybe it's now just about your head. I have a, a chemical imbalance. Is that what you're trying to say? <laughs> That's totally it. Hmm. Yeah. So um, I'm just telling you, there's a lot of stuff out there that you guys may be missing because you're at work. I saw a lot of great infomercials. So work less? Is that what you're trying to say? I don't know. Just maybe you need to be recording stuff at home. Huh. Apparently, uh, gluten-free meth is a thing, too. We'll be talking about that later in the show. Like now, people well, it's that a are concern. well now that yeah you're if like you have um, an intolerance, so you got to ask your drug and an dealer. Addiction, you know, oh, is this gluten free? <laughs> like, what's happening to the world? I seriously, I'm out. I'm on morphine for a few days. Mm. No big deal. Next thing I know, you got to ask your meth dealer, is it gluten free? You don't know what goes into that stuff. You got to make sure. James Comey's out. Just because they made it in their bathtub doesn't mean it does not have gluten. <laughs> By the way, it had no connection with the gluten free meth. His firing. Oh, it didn't? No. Okay, because I, I just saw the two stories. Well, we don't side. know, but there could be tapes. And then apparently, yeah, there could be tapes, but apparently also Donald Trump is in a lot of trouble. I mean, more trouble, according to the Huffington Post. Wrong. He just shared password-sensitive intelligence with the Russians. It's You're not, wrong. A big, not a big deal. But it's about ISIS. And then yesterday, all those people said he didn't do it, and this morning he came out on Twitter and said, yeah, I did it. Of course I did it. So it's like, do we? Care? I mean, what do we listen to for the last twenty four hours? Alternative facts. That's what she said. <laughs> Literally. What's so great is again, we're only about one hundred and ten days into this. It's great. Okay. Nothing Good but some, positive things nothing, going forward. Nothing but positive going forward. Hey, up next, uh, Doctor Lee Phillips will be joining us as we talk about the future of solar power. Get ready, folks. Uh, the latest, the greatest, all the data on solar panels. Should you be investing? What about storage? What about uh, when it's just a rainy day? What about nighttime? How does solar work, you know, when there's no sun? Scary. Stick with us. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Solar energy... Uh, has captivated us since we were children. If you remember back in the day from having a solar-powered toy or a glow-in-the-dark, you know, kind of uh, powered uh, calculator with one of those, you know, wonderful little grids on it that would attract the sunlight and would almost 
75% of the time, as long as you didn't keep it in a drawer, the calculator would work. Well, although it works on a small scale, how does it work on a bigger scale? Will it be environmentally sustainable and economically sustainable to uh, to really move everything to solar? Here to speak with us today is Dr. Lee Phillips. He's a theoretical physicist and writer who lives in McLean, Virginia. Dr. Phillips, thank you so much for your time. Thanks for having me. Talk about it, because we we in my neighborhood, everyone's getting solar panels. And, uh, you know, we live I live in Utah in the West. It, it seems to be like a really smart option. But but then I have in the back of my head all of these concerns that, you know, is it really here to stay? So give us a little update on the state of solar power. Yeah, I think uh, 10 years ago, wondering whether solar power is really here to stay would be very rational. Um, but in the last few years, solar energy has uh, really seen a, a transition. And that's to do with the increasing efficiencies of solar panels and the decrease in cost. Uh, very few people are aware of this, uh, and I discovered it myself in writing these articles for Ars Technica. But now, as of the last just couple of years, for every unit of energy that an energy company invests in extracting or, or building power plants, um, solar power now generates more energy than the equivalent investment in oil or gas. Hmm. Wow. So just from the point of view of pure economics, if you're uh, an oil company trying to make money, you will make more profit if you transition to renewable energy. In fact, and we've heard that. We've had uh, gas companies on the show talking about the fact that they're moving. You know, they're moving away from coal. They're investing in a lot of these technologies. Um but, you know, it's going to take years, 30, 40, 50 years. And I guess just maybe take off, uh, take off the, the overriding issue, which, which to me and the gas company brought it up. It's a great point that, you know, there's, there's, there's only so much fuel when there's sun, right? So we can get as much energy as we can from the sun in the day. But at night, they still need something to generate the energy because storage is such a problem. That's exactly right. Uh, energy storage is the one big remaining problem that's holding back widespread adoption of solar energy. Um, if you're, say, a young scientist and, and want to get in on, on helping society solve its energy problem, I think probably the most critical thing you can do is to not research solar power because that is a problem that's pretty much solved at this point. It's researching energy storage technologies, batteries, capacitors, things that can even out the supply of energy when, when the sun goes down, and also power distribution technologies to yeah. power moving from where the sun shines to where the sun doesn't shine too much. Because that's a really important point, um, and you bring it up in your article, because simultaneously to the whole solar power uh, push that's on right now, we also see companies like Tesla who are now creating these incredible electric cars and that – can now are our major storage units of energy. So it's almost like we're coming to this convergence. Yeah, as people are buying battery-powered cars, plug-in electric cars, and those are big arrays of batteries. If you plug those into your house at night, the car itself can become your energy storage unit. And if you're attached to the grid, the fleet, the, the population-owned fleet of electric cars can become a kind of grid-leveling supply-leveling mechanism. Hmm. Is is it the silver bullet that we all want it to be, or is it just kind of, 
you know, we've thrown enough money at it. it. I mean, it's an obvious, it makes sense. There's the sun, the greatest source of energy. I mean, why are we not taking advantage of it? Or so, but or is it really just being propped up by by the governments of the world so it's going to succeed anyway? It wouldn't succeed no matter how much it were subsidized if it, if it didn't work. Um, it is subsidized. I only have the numbers for the United States, but the... Um, if you just look at tax incentives, there might be about $15 billion per year in subsidies for renewable energy. I think that's mostly in solar. But uh, fossil fuels are subsidized also and always have been. Um, the Treasury Department estimates it's about $4.7 billion per year just in tax incentives for coal, uh, oil and coal. And there's an additional subsidy that's sometimes not taken into consideration, and that's the social cost of burning coal, and that's estimated to be about $200 billion per year. Oh, man. Um, so this is, this is something that we're all paying for. The government doesn't pay it directly, but we all pay for it in the form of higher health care. Um, and in, in, addition, in addition to that $200 billion social cost, there's the cost of our military. Our entire involvement in the Middle East is uh, at least partly due to the desire for energy security. If we didn't have to import oil, that would all become unnecessary. It's true. In fact, one of the things that was kind of mind-blowing, I love your article. It is, it's incredibly, um, it's, it's so detailed, so well-researched. But one of the things that I, didn't, that I didn't quite understand about the history of solar is the military, so the most advanced military on the earth, they inve- and NASA, they invested in solar a long time ago to fuel all of their satellites. Well, it's an interesting story. I don't know how much of it I can remember. But some of the first uh, solar arrays were put on secret military satellites. And the, I think it was the Air Force, they didn't believe in it. Um, The scientists were pushing it and saying, yes, all you need to do is put on a a solar array, and that's all you need. But it was so new that the military forced them to put on a battery backup in case it didn't work. So they launched this this secret satellite into orbit, the battery quickly failed, and it was just powered by by solar power for however many years it was up there. It's amazing. I mean, really, and especially now that you hear that we're getting to Pluto with some of these orbiters or probes or whatever, and they're still being powered, I'm sure. Well, some of them are nuclear, but but having the backup as well, I'm sure, of of solar. When you think about the solar, um, the technology, where are we there? I mean, I guess because for years it was, you know, the, the cells weren't strong enough. They, they didn't get a good enough ratio between the actual energy that came in versus the energy that was stored and saved. Where, where are we as far as the efficiency of solar? Yeah, it's, it's um, right now for a run-of-the-mill solar cell, regular one that, that you would get your installer to put on your house, it is running something like 20 to 25% efficient. And that is enough to push it, to make it economically um, attractive. For At least if you live in a place with a reasonable amount of sun, you're not surrounded by a lot of tall buildings or trees that you can't that you're, put you in deep shade. And um, if your electricity cost is not so low that it just doesn't make sense to invest in an alternative, yeah. uh, which it is in some, in some states, it varies by a factor of 10 from state to state, the actual cost of buying electricity. If, if all that works out, then it is uh, almost a no-brainer. If you have a little extra capital, especially if you're, you're financing a new house purchase, putting an extra $20,000 into 
not having to ever buy electricity from the power company makes a lot of sense for a lot of people. Hmm. And in fact, if you're attached to the grid, and almost everybody is, um, you can sometimes make money selling your power back to the power company, and they're required to buy it in, in many states and, and pay you pay you for it. Is so? Let me ask you this idea: Is it? It seems like it's in the best interest of the entire country to to um, to maybe make infrastructure decisions where we we have the entire middle of the country much of the West, uh, much of middle America, with a lot of empty fields, a lot of farmers that can't even afford to farm anymore. It seems like we could be taking in a lot of power from the middle of the country. Why, why are we not in, and would it not be better to invest in it as a country versus just house to house? Absolutely. I, I think it would. Um, most of the action is on the, the community level, um, not nationwide. I, I took a drive through as I mentioned in my article, through uh, rural Virginia recently. And you pass you know, a field of corn, another field of corn, a field of cows, and then a field of solar panels. Huh. And it's an amazing sight. Yeah. There are farmers putting, using their empty fields and farming the sun. And it's not for their own personal use. It's these um, like communities at the level of small towns that, that pool their resources and, and buy solar power and distribute it. The problem with Running the entire country off of uh, solar farms in the middle of the country is, again, storage and distribution. So really, we can do that in the middle of the country, but then is it just not – So, which is amazing to me. So it's 22 percent efficient, I think you were saying. Yet – so, boy, what happens when we get it to 60 percent efficient down in the, um, in the future? Does it get yeah, that high? Yeah. No, there are some natural limits. The a regular conventional solar cell can never go more than about 33% efficient. Hmm. That's because uh, a lot of the, it can only absorb certain wavelengths of light. This is a, a silicon solar cell. The rest of the light just gets reflected off or turned into waste heat. Uh, there are advanced solar cells that are put on uh, NASA spacecraft, and they're about 40% efficient. But oh, wow. incredibly expensive. Yeah. You never have them on your house. Right. Interesting. Um, but 20% is enough. Yeah. It's enough to run the country on solar energy if you had a little bit uh, of technological advance in energy storage, which we're getting. Storage and transfer of the energy, right? Moving the energy around the country? Exactly. Um, now, on a local scale, it makes perfect sense if you live in Utah or... Well, I was surprised when I wrote this article that I talked to about half a dozen people around in different states who had installed solar panels on their houses to see what their experience was. And these are some people were in Colorado, sunny areas, and other, well, some, someone else was in Vermont, where I didn't, I didn't expect them to have a great experience. Um, but every one of them said that it was great. Hmm. <laughs> they were very glad that they'd done it. And even people who were a little ambivalent about the economics, they said it was, it, it was an expense, and it would take a while to pay itself back another 20 years or so, even they were happy they did it because it just made them feel good. There is the feel-good side of this, isn't there? They felt more independent. Yeah. They didn't have to depend on the power company, and they felt that when they turned on their hairdryer, they weren't polluting the air. Mm-hmm. Is, is there... Um, I mean, I guess, and one of the things we'll, we'll probably get in, de- in depth on in a few minutes is the discussion about how government is handling it, because it seems like our local communities and governments can make it a lot easier for us or maybe more complicated. I know in my world, in my state, 
it's kind of complicated because you don't just you don't just get one check between you and your power company. You've got to get a check to pay for the panels. You then have to you you might you might you still have to pay your power bill, but then you'll get a check back in return for what you're. I mean, it's just still complicated. Is I guess are we just at the we're just at the beginning of this? Is that why it's so complicated, or is it that governments are are and and power companies are now fighting for who actually owns this power? No, I think it's anything having to do with government paperwork is complicated, right? They can never make it easy for you. And this, if you are, are looking, and most people are, they're looking to see what kind of tax breaks they can get and anything they can get back from the government for this. It involves a lot of paperwork, and it, the regulations are different in every town and every state. So I wish it were simple, um, yeah. but it's probably not going to be simple. You have to... You have to bite the bullet and, and deal with the government if you want to get some of the money back. Some of the incentives are even in the in the form of uh, property tax. It works this way: if you make an improvement to your house, it's worth more, and so you get taxed more. Right. You live in a state with the property tax. So putting people are hesitant or had been in putting uh, solar cells on the roofs because they thought, well, that will assess my house higher, and I'll pay more tax. So one of the ways that states and counties incentivize solar power is to say we're not going to count that and we're not going to make your tax rate or your, your property tax go up if you make your house more valuable by putting solar cells on it hmm. so that's just one layer of complication that's another form you have to fill out yeah yeah go on so yeah it, i'm not saying it's it's simple um and you have to deal with installers and, and yeah and you have to finance your panels and but then you get a lot of rebates and a lot of incentives for buying the panels. Um, do, do you do you see that there will be a day? Because one of the things, too, is I would love I – mean, I think I would have done it in a second if I knew that my house could draw in a lot of power, but also that that, that power was in some way – um, accessible to me and mine, not because I could. St- I'm still putting it back into the grid, and the grid could shut down at any time, and I wouldn't necessarily have independent power over my own power. Yeah, you don't unless unless you spend the extra money for enough batteries right, to, to store enough power to run your house for a couple of days. You'll, you'll be attached to the grid, and that means that if there's a blackout in your area, you have a blackout too in your house. Right. You're not allowed to, you'll, in other words, you'll have an automatic switch attached between you and the grid that shuts it off if there's a blackout. And that's because if, when there's a blackout, there'll probably be somebody trying to fix it eventually. And if you're feeding power onto the grid, you'll electrocute that person. Hmm. So for safety, uh, a blackout on the grid means that even though you have your own power, you, you can't use it. Now, answer this as the engineer. Am I using, if I, if I have solar panels, am I using during the day my own energy created at my house? Or am I just really transferring it all back to the grid and then borrowing it back from the grid? Oh, if you're producing enough, if you're producing less than, than what you're consuming, then the difference is made up by the grid. So find your power so you'll pay a little bit, your meter will spin slowly. But, the, but I'm actually using my own energy that came from my house. Yes, plus extra from, from yeah. the grid if you need it. Oh, that's if you're great. producing more, if it's a sunny day and you're not using much, your conditioner is off, and you're producing more than you're consuming, your, your meter should be running backwards, and you'll get that check at the end of the month mm. if that happens enough. 
Yeah. Let's uh, let's take a break, Lee. We're speaking with Dr. Lee Phillips, who's a theoretical physicist and writer who lives in McLean, Virginia. He's worked on projects for the Navy, NASA, the Department of Energy on laser fusion, fluid flow, plasma physics, and scientific computation. Today we're talking about the state of residential solar power and uh, learning what we can. Is it is it a good bet? Is it a safe investment? Interesting insights. Uh, from a physicist. Stick with us. This is the Matt Townsend Show, helping you be the good in the world. Welcome back, friends. Today we're talking about the future of solar power. And according to our guest, Dr. Lee Phillips, uh, you know, folks, it's here to stay. <laughs> and it's whether whether you, you get it, you love it, whether you're an early adopter, as some are, or just, you know, you're going to go kicking and screaming. Solar power seems to be overcoming a lot of the obstacles that at one time um, were impediments. One thing is the efficiencies up uh, to a, a, a higher level. It also is um, starting to, it seems like, uh, improve with with some of the help from maybe Tesla and Solar City. Um, you know, this, now there's better looking panels going on, more efficient panels, um, less probably damage to the house with the panels. And um, so we we wanted to just pick uh, Dr. Lee Phillips' brain and, and find out what we need to know, how we make the decision going forward. Lee, thank you again for your time. Oh, my pleasure. Is when when you see like these major investments, uh, even Tesla now is into it with Solar City, and they're talking about the fact that if you wanted to roof uh, your your uh, house with their new solar roofing tools or, or products, it, it could cost on average about fifty one thousand dollars for the solar paneling. Plus, if you want a power wall to store the energy, another seven grand. So that could be about $58,000 a house at the high end, plus a lot, much less at the, at the lower end. Do you sense that the, the prices will go down in the future? What do you see as far as Tesla's play and how this will, how this will roll out over the next 20, 30 years? Well, you have to hand it to Elon Musk. Yeah. He has a, a grand vision. And um, he's really apparently trying to own the energy world of the future. Uh, he has... They're developing batteries uh, that are the same, pretty much batteries they put in their electric cars. So one giant battery factory can make batteries for everything. They made a new product, which is um, not simply solar panels that you attach to your roof, which can look kind of ugly, but an actual, an entire roof that um, is a solar panel. Wow. That it only really makes economic sense for a new construction. Uh, to actually replace your roof with this would be... It would look great, but you'd have to have a lot of disposable, uh, tens of thousands of dollars to do that. So they're aiming at new construction, new houses to, to put the system in. Um, the, will the prices go down in the future? Well, everything gets cheaper, right? Right. Uh, as research continues and factories get ramped up and, and the economies of scale kick in, things are bound to get cheaper. There's really there's no bottleneck, no impossible to obtain material or anything that would cause this technology to actually become more expensive. They've talked about so, the fact that the, these panels are being made in places like China and the cost of goods. I mean, 
then they have so they're making them in China, shipping them all the way back here to then use them. So historically, that was seen as like not a very efficient model, and but yet the the costs are dropping as well. Yeah, I'm not up on where most of the manufacturing is now. I'm sure a lot of it is still in China. I know that there is some in the United States. Um, so as we live in a global environment where things are manufactured wherever it makes sense to manufacture them, and shipping is cheaper than it used to be. Containerized shipping is pretty efficient. So we'll be buying them wherever we can get them. Uh, it'll be technology that's uh, mostly developed in United States universities. Hmm. That's licensed to factories all around the world, probably. How do you see, I mean, I see how it works in the West. I can see how my neighborhood is doing it. A lot of every other home is is getting solar panels now, it seems like, um, in the West. How does this roll out in places like New York, in Philadelphia? And will they have higher, you know, electricity costs as they have to borrow it and ship it in from the, from other states? I don't think anyone has a really good solution for a big city where there are there are almost no single-family homes and everything's an apartment building, right? There's not enough roof area on a big apartment building right. to put enough panels to supply everyone in there. So you you have to be supplied from some solar farm outside the city. Um, again, it's the same problem of energy storage and distribution that's still not completely solved. And um, it's a great opportunity for scientists to get into right now. Do you sense that the states will – will the federal government – kind of uh, look at it as an infrastructure goal? Will it be just still more on the community level? How do you think would be the best way for it to play out, to roll out the farms? We're talking about basic research, uh, a lot of which is still needed, especially for energy storage. That is almost entirely paid for by the federal government, and no one can predict the future funding priorities of the federal government. All you can do is get a grant for this year and hope that it's renewed for next year. But there are laboratories all over the country that are doing fundamental research in new solar energy technologies, things that you can paint on your house that generate electricity, uh, flexible and transparent solar cells. There's one you can put on the, uh, the windshield of your car that will melt the ice overnight as it generates electricity, hmm. things like that. But uh, this all depends on the federal government seeing the big picture and realizing that we We'll all benefit as a society, and we'll all profit from getting away from fossil fuels and uh, funding an alternative. I don't think industry can do it by itself. It never has been able to do these kinds of massive research projects by itself. Uh, the days of Bell Labs are long gone. Mm. It takes vision at the federal level to fund research that helps uh, our civilization move forward. Do you, do you sense that we could be... Is there a risk we're putting ourselves at for the fact that, you know, um, to to invest so much in a solar-powered grid, you know, if something happened, uh, I don't know, even just clouds or too much smog or whatever, something that made it so the solar wasn't as powerful, are we – it just seems like it would be nice to be able to flip a switch and start running fuel again. Um. Yeah, energy diversity is probably wise. I think that in some parts of the world, very higher or low latitudes, places with uh, constant thick cloud cover, like the Pacific Northwest, um, it might be a better idea to have uh, wind power 
or geothermal or hydropower in those places. Um, solar is not the best choice for, for every location. But if we have some state of affairs where we're not getting any more sunlight, then I think we'll have bigger problems than our solar powers. Our solar right. Well, what about what about terrorism against these grids? They seem like they might be more fragile. Uh, you know, kind of to, to some type of Im- electrical impulse or overwhelming the system uh, with a, an impulse or some. I mean, I guess we've already talked on the show too about the fact that the power grid is really one of our big vulnerabilities anyway. But is is solar any more vulnerable than the the, the current measures we use to create power? Well, here I'm just speculating, but I would guess that it's actually more secure because it would be it would depend on a larger number of smaller um, energy producing stations. Uh, right now, if you have um, our, our only real alternative to solar and other renewables is uh, nuclear power, which is a viable alternative, mm-hmm. especially you know as a transitional technology. For solar power, really really can do everything for us. And um, talk about a target for terrorism. Right. Nuclear power plant is a pretty good target. Um, I think most of the risk to the power grid is through computer intrusion. Of course, it's controlled by, by computers, and uh, if you can uh, crack into there, then you can shut down parts of the grid. Um, but I think that that is probably just no more or less vulnerable, uh, regardless of where the the source of energy comes from, right? The, the, the controllers that, that control the distribution of power, um, it's just electricity. Once it gets on the wire, it doesn't matter where the electricity is made. It's still electricity going over wires. Right. So the grid itself will be no more or less vulnerable. The um, power, just power production network will be probably more secure because it will be more widespread, fewer high-value targets. Yeah. Is it, uh, when you look at it, uh, how how do you know? So if I'm just the average homeowner, how do I go about making this decision to know if it if it's a good deal for me? Um, you can call the installers in your area. Of course, they're trying to run their business, so they're going to try to tell you it's a good idea. But, you know, you can compare. <clears throat> they, can, they can run the numbers for you. They know how, to, how you'll get your subsidies and, and how it will work out, how it's worked out for for your neighbors, that kind of thing. Also, you can go to, what is it called? Google has a, a website. I, it's linked yeah. on my article. I can't remember. Yeah, I'll find it in the article. Exactly where it's on something. Um, you can put in your address into that website, and it will give you a rough estimate of uh, how the economics work out for your particular house. You know, they have all the houses on Google Maps, so they know how, how big your roof is and what direction it faces in and that kind of thing. And if you don't take it, you know, if you don't take it too seriously and believe it to the to the very last dollar, it'll give you a general idea of how things will work out. Project Sunroof, I believe is the name. Yeah, that's it. Of it. Um is so and then um I guess the key too is you don't have to be a physicist to to want to do this. I mean, I know a lot of the early adopters in my neighborhood were really smart. I mean, they already they knew exactly what they wanted to do. They were retired engineers, and they wanted it. Um, it made sense for them. But I guess in the end, you're going to have people more and more coming to your door, and 
to the states and the cities that this works effectively in and efficiently, you're going to be you're going to have sales pitches. It's going to start happening. I guess I haven't gotten one myself yet. Oh. I'm be surprised. It's you big know, in the West, yeah. As recently as ten years ago, people with solar panels were like hippies or right. people who they they just wanted so badly to be off the grid that they were willing to make a sacrifice. But that's completely different now. Um, you know, people nothing works unless it works for your wallet, right? There's, nothing's going to be adopted unless people can can afford it. It makes economic sense for them. It doesn't matter what they read in a newspaper about global warming. You have to pay your your bills every month, right? So if people are if you see solar panels going up all over the area, it's because it works. It works economically. And, I mean, I guess that's the powerful thing because it works um, and it gives back is the great thing. I mean, I think that's where this is so valuable. Well, Lee, we appreciate your insight, your wonderful article on ArsTechnica.com about the future of solar power. It's it, it's always been an option it's, and now it's becoming a more and more of a viable option, which, I again, I think if it can lower our costs and save our planet, let's do it. We'll take a break, my friends. This is the Matt Townsend Show, helping you be the good in the world. Stick with us. Because life doesn't come with a handbook, you need a coach. Here's Dr. Matt and his coaching corner. Play ball! Play ball! Welcome back. You know, so we had people knocking door-to-door last year. And just offering the great, wonderful, incredible opportunities of solar power. And I immediately just had a gut reaction. No, I'm not doing that. No way. I mean, I've had a watch, a solar-powered watch that never worked because of that. So I'm not doing that. So maybe one of the things we, we need to look at is what if the technology says it's good? Uh, what if the financial savings works for you? Um what if it all lines up? Would you then do it? Or do you still have this aversion to change? Because one of the things maybe each of us needs to look at, and it makes sense, some of us just don't like change. We don't like it, right? We just don't like to see certain people put into office or taken out of office. We don't like to see certain car technologies advancing. We don't. We just don't like the change. But if you have an aversion to change, be careful because it doesn't mean that there's not opportunities and it doesn't mean that there's not um, advancements going on. I have so many people that uh, of certain generations that w- are single that will tell me that they would never date online because that's just – ooh, that's just gross. Who would date online? And then I look at the younger generations that are doing a lot of dating online and I think, hmm – What is the difference except just our experience, our expectation? So remember, whether it's solar panels or not, change is going to happen. And it doesn't mean you have to be the early adopter that jumps, you know, two feet in early. But, you know, you might want to start to look at what keeps you from making the changes you need to make in your life. And if it's just a gut feeling from something that you're uninformed about, maybe go get more informed. Then see what the gut's telling you. A little basic change information. We'll take a break, my friends. This is the Matt Townsend Show, here three hours a day to help you live longer, love stronger, lead healthier, happier lives. Stick with us. We'll be right back.
This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. This is the program where I give you the latest and greatest research to uh, live healthier, happier lives. Not all of us were given the perfect handbook when we were born or raised. And so uh, we'll bring you how to live longer, how to love stronger, how to lead healthier lives. Top of the morning to you from the man with a rejuvenated pancreas. My pancreas is on the mend. Thank you. Thank you. Apparently can't have my gallbladder surgery until the pancreas is all happy. Hmm. Interesting. Oh, come on. I know. That's what I told my doctor. Come on. But uh, I'm back. I'm healthy. It just as long as what it is, is, if I don't eat any food, I'm great. And if I don't eat any f- good food with any fat. Huh. So what are you eating? Just a lot of drinks, a lot of liquids, a lot of smoothies. Should I have given you my orange juice that yeah, I just chugged I in front of you? That, I'm sorry. Salivating. That looks so good. I've been um, I've been getting very creative in my in my smoothie making. I really like spinach in my smoothie. I'm sorry. Makes it very green. Yeah. Like that. Tried a little cranberry raspberry smoothie thing last night. It's really good. Yeah. And my wife always tries to sl- slip in like spinach or hmm. she goes, oh, there's kale in there. I'm like. Yeah. Uh, I'll pass. I haven't done kale yet. I didn't want to go that far out on the limb. Yeah. Because kale's on the edge of the limb. Yeah. It's way it's, out there. It's barely food. It's more of a decoration. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so I – but I'm also to this point where I want something substantial. And I can have low fat substantial. It's just I don't – I'm not – in my brain, I don't know where fat ends and low fat begins. <laughs> <laughs> there's a fine line and I don't know where it is yet hmm. I can't cross over it or I go down on my knees in pain really yeah is it a good pain no it's oh. a bad pain it's like worse than a kidney stone no, pain. so what if the meal is really good like a steak oh, or something no. you really enjoy the meal oh I, see I haven't had one of those lately. knowing that the pain is coming would you take the risk no not now really because oh. I get nauseous like thinking about it okay well. but then there's that moment where your gallstone moves, I guess, mm. and the and the gallbladder does its job, and then it's just like, ah. I think we can all relate. Yeah, it's it's funny. You just need to lose a little bit of your health to enjoy your health. Hmm. I really love my health now. Or what you have of it? Yeah, the little bit that I have. Of it. <laughs> I am um, tired of drinking through straws. It's kind of weird. Do you have to? Is that a no? no you don't have to drink no, through a straw. But it okay. just, it just that's the sign that you're sickly. Oh, where's my straw? Where's my straw? Yeah, but right. it, and everything's liquid too. You know, I'm trying to. Oh, I wanted it. My my wife made bacon. She's killing me. Did I tell you about the Kentucky Fried Chicken she made? Yeah. She, so she bought Kentucky Fried Chicken, and then yesterday, all my kids were eating bacon. What are they doing? I have no idea. It's the well, weirdest. Why aren't they eating like rice? I, I'm. They eat that too. Did they have like the fried rice? Did they have the KFC double down, which is fried chicken with bacon in the middle? Ooh, that would just be rude. Uh, that sounds heavenly, but literally, I would die if I ate a, if I ate the skin off of a chicken. I would die. 
Well, technically, I think most people should, but we're you know more resolute than that. So, what, so, what about your family on a liquid diet? Could they all? I've tried. I've tried. Nobody's into it. it. Like I make really cool looking smoothies, and they're all like, yeah. mm. they grab some bacon and walk yeah. out of the room, and then they're drinking mm. my drinks. Like I, I would never normally have just loved V8. I love V8 actually, but it's high in sodium and tomatoes. Yeah, it's very high in tomatoes. <laughs> but I I made a meal the other day you would not believe with um, – oh, it was so good. It's still good. This is like my favorite meal. Um, spaghetti squash. OK. Because there's like no fat there. Sure. A little, little uh, olive oil maybe. For, and, for taste. Uh-huh. Again, then, and no you taste. won't believe it. Then you pour, you pour a V8 on it. OK. And it tastes like spaghetti. Mm. <laughs> it is so satisfying. It is so satisfying. Sounds hey, soupy. Palakiko it is a little soupy. Is giving us the no sign on that. Cooking with Kiko, Palakiko? Yeah. Yes. Future segment of, of the show. Of cooking with Kiko fame, yes. Yeah, well, let's let me step on his pancreas <laughs> and then we'll see how he likes it. Wow. So I I will be making I'll be giving you my latest recipes as well. Nice. Just mm-hmm. share that knowledge. Smooth Arama. We can all go, wow, we eat real food and move on. It'll be great. Lots of stuff going on. Uh, In a bit, we're going to be talking about goal setting. What separates the goals that we achieve from those we don't? Jeff made a really good point. Uh, The easy ones we achieve, the hard ones we don't achieve. When was this? In my dream. Oh, I see. Last night. You made that really good point. Well, good job. Uh, Today, we'll also be talking about uh, how to make sure that your meth amphetamine is not laced with deadly gluten. Nothing kills you faster than gluten. Right. That's why – or like if you're lactose intolerant, you don't want lactose. It's not the household cleaning products that the meth was made out of. Yeah. It's the gluten that you need to be worried gluten. about. So. The deadly gluten. We'll talk about that. Plus a grandfather's ashes are among the items stolen from a Springfield home. What do you do with that? Maybe they were in a neat, cool-looking container of some kind. Yeah. But then you open it and you're like, ah, oh, boy. Like, wow, there are ashes in here. What did I take? I'm telling you. We'll yeah. get to all that fun. Uh, plus, of course, the discussion on goal setting straight ahead. But first, let's get to the headlines with Terry South. Terry, what's going on? A 16-year-old South Carolina high schooler died from heart problems caused by consuming too much caffeine. Davis Kripe collapsed and died in a classroom at Spring Hill High School Monday after his heart fell out of rhythm, the Associated Press reports. Oh. In the two hours before his death, he drank a latte, a large Mountain Dew, and an energy drink. While teenagers, te- uh, teenagers can drink a cup of coffee or a glass of soda, caffeine can be deadly in large amounts. Uh, uh, Kripe's father said his son never drank alcohol or did, did illegal drugs, and he wants his death to serve as a warning for other teens who might consume large amounts That's of caffeine. Nice. That's a nice thing to do because kids are down in this stuff like crazy. Yeah, I watch people walk out of uh, – you go buy gas. And yeah. People just walking out with energy drinks left and right. Well, it's weird because I used to – consume a lot of caffeine and i don't and look what's happening to me my life's falling apart i'm finding out caffeine used to keep me together it was your stimulant it kept you going that's right lowe's of uh, the uh, home improvement store their uniforms just got a serious upgrade in christiansburg virginia where shoppers may spot a new robotic exosuit in action oh boy four employees there are testing out exoskeleton prototypes that aid workers in heavy lifting 
The technology looks much like a harness with carbon fiber rods that run along the wearer's back and thighs. As the worker bends to lift objects, the shafts collect potential energy, which springs back and releases upon standing. The idea stemmed from Lowe's Innovation Labs, which partnered with sci-fi writers. To create futuristic narratives for, t- for potential technology, in this example, the imagined technology grants employees superhuman powers to maximize performance. Lowe said, "From there, the suit was designed in、uh, collaboration with Virginia Tech engineering professor、uh, Dr. Alan Aspect. About a month into a three-month pilot program, testing has been positive. The employees wear the suits all day. For Lowe's workers, some who spend 90% of their day moving and lifting heavy merchandise like cement bags, the exosuit." Can be be a game changer for them, for、sure. but the company is also hoping that if expanded beyond the Virginia store, the exosuit program will serve as a recruiting tool. Who wouldn't want to work in a place where you get to wear an exosuit? Well, I wouldn't, but I call me old fashioned. You're old fashioned. Okay, but it, it could also help with possibly with safety. Yeah, no, it's just a cool idea, but you、yeah. know that one guy's going to sneak one out. Oh yeah, and then he'll go out and life of crime. I am a robot, right? From Lowe's, he'll start lifting cars and stuff. And who's going to stop him?、Right. He's got an exosuit. I think we're making、so、super criminals here.、Uh, a New Hampshire man who was injured in a house explosion is thanking Siri for saving his life. Christopher、uh, Butcher said that he was checking on his mother's vacant home on May first when he saw something <laughs> suspicious and went inside. He says he switched on the light and the house exploded into flames.、Ooh. Part of it collapsed while I was in it during the initial explosion, so I couldn't really tell, tell where I was. Butcher's face and hands were badly burned in the explosion. He managed to exit the home and get to his car, but he says his injuries left him un- un- unable to dial the phone. He says he somehow asked his phone's voice-controlled virtual assistant Siri to call 911, believing he was going into shock. He is still undergoing treatment for his injuries, but says that he hopes to return to his job as a cook and tend to his farm. And credits his survival because of Siri. How cool! Thank you, Siri. See, the rest of us, we ask Siri to、oh, do things. I've never been more mad than at Siri. Never actually does what you ask. She always, what, what was that? I didn't quite hear you, or some something ridiculous no,、totally. like that. She actually did what she was supposed to do this time. Good job, and, Siri. And finally, it may seem like a harmless souvenir, trucking a lava rock from the Big Island into your pocket, but many tourists believe that Hawaiian, the Hawaiian memento, comes with weighty baggage, a curse. Warning that the、uh, volcano goddess will have her revenge on you if、yeah. you steal the, the lava rock. The Wall Street Journal reports that hundreds of visitors mail back their pilfered keepsakes each year after、really? learning of the legend. Some even hand deliver their mineral chunks back to the slopes of the volcano. The deluge of returned rocks is driving National Park Service <laughs> workers insane. Uh, there is no curse on the rocks. One rep wrote to colleagues. Another rep called the widespread myth deeply offensive to native inhabitants. The legend origins are unclear, but scholars tell the Wall Street Journal it has nothing to do with the local religion and more to do with park rangers likely fabricating the story decades ago、no. in a bid to halt the thefts of lava rocks. No, no, no. It was Cindy and Bobby Brady. Right. Well, they, they took the tiki. They took the tiki doll, yeah. And then everything started to go wrong. And I think Greg had a surfing accident. There was a spider, if you remember. Spider. Tarantula showed、uh-huh. up. Yeah. You know, Palakiko just went home to Hawaii recently, and ever since he got back, weird stuff has been happening. Well, but I think that's just because Palakiko's here. He came back. It was fine when he left. It's the curse of Palakia. There, there is a、uh, a level of like a federal crime for stealing rocks from these protected. Palakia has been stealing rocks from Hawaii for years. Right,、well, hasn't he been stealing books too? He steals books and rocks and free food. 
Yeah. Too bad y'all can't hear from Palakiko because he's just sitting in another room. He's sweating trying bullets. To communicate, but we just keep his microphone down. He's guilty as all get out. Um, he's a good guy. We're gonna miss him when he's in that the uh, that program he's going to with right. the feds. The feds for mm-hmm. stealing rocks. Yeah, uh, really. But let's do research. I'm pretty sure the rock that began with Vincent Price. What was his name? Vincent Price. Wasn't he the old man in the cave? Uh, on on the Brady Bunch? I'm not sure. I'm pretty sure it was Vincent Price. The oh, scary wow. old Vincent Price. Marsha, Marsha, Marsha. <laughs> I don't remember sounding no, like that. No, no, no. Uh, okay, so here's a crazy question for you. Um, methamphetamine, bad, right? Bad. Bad. Yeah. Is there anything that would make it worse? Fruity flavors. How about Gluten. Fruity flavors. Yeah. How about kale? Um, Never say the Niceville, Florida Police Department is not on top of its public service game. In a Facebook post, the department has offered to examine citizens' methamphetamine stashes to check for the presence of deadly gluten. This is brilliant. Yeah. Just bring your meth down to the PD and we will test it for you for free. The department exhorts meth users take note. Free is good. Nashville Police Chief uh, David Popwell said the department's webpage manager got the idea from the post from a for the post from a police department in California. While there haven't been any takers so far, Popwell said there is a benefit to getting the community to talk about these kinds of serious issues. You know how much info you're going to get. You never know how much you're going to get from the comments. He said the post has now re- post has now reached three hundred thousand Facebook users. That's cool. It's been shared 3,000 times. No, he says that it's going to provoke important conversations yeah. about meth or gluten. Well, but you know, probably both, both? quite honestly. Okay. And what's amazing is you know that there's some meth head that's sitting there saying, no, seriously, Stacy, they'll do it for free. I'm intolerant. <laughs> I can't have gluten. <laughs> they will just check it out. But you're the one that's got the gluten allergy. I do not want to have meth in the home you know they put you've all, got a gluten allergy. They put all kinds of stuff in this. That's funny. <laughs> It's really funny. And congratulations to them because they're they're not only making life funny, but they're also helping us along the way. A grandfather's ashes are among the stolen items from a Springfield home, police say. Police say a man broke into a Springfield, Missouri home last month, stole several items, including a box containing the ashes of the victim's grandfather. Carl A. Jackson, 32, was charged last week with first-degree burglary. After police say he stole from a Springville family and then sold their belongings, according to the probable cause statement, Jackson and another man were riding their bicycles uh, on that morning of April 25th when they came upon the house with no cars in the driveway. The statement says the men then broke into the house, rummaged around, gathering up items like a gun, electronics, clothing, jewelry, and, sadly, the ashes of the victim's deceased grandfather. When one of the residents got home about noon, the statement says the suspects ran out of the house and fled the scene on their bicycles. Like, what is this? You don't even have a car? Oh, well. Efficient. Police contacted Jackson later that day, and uh, he had a backpack full of stolen items from the burglary. As of last week, police had not recovered the stolen ashes. So everything was recovered except the ashes. Except the ashes. Hmm. (sighs) Ashes, ashes. We all fall down. That's it. Off your bicycle. Crazy stuff, folks. Consider yourself lucky. And you know what? Hold your grandparents' ashes tighter. You never know. Somebody might be out for them.
We're going to take a break. When we come back, we're going to be talking about goal setting and some of the latest research uh, from Harvard Business Review about why we achieve certain goals and what makes it so we don't achieve other goals. Interesting insight. Stick with us. Welcome back, friends. You know, the importance of delaying gratification is universally recognized. Being able to forego immediate benefits in order to achieve larger goals in the future, it's viewed as a key skill for uh, for each of us. And for example, consider the classic, what they call the marshmallow test, that experiment that was done where children's ability to delay eating one marshmallow so that they could get two marshmallows has over time, in a longitudinal study, been linked to a number of positive life outcomes, including academics success, healthier relationships. So we've asked uh, Caitlin Woolley to join us. She's a PhD candidate at the University of Chicago School of uh, Business and is uh, online with us today to discuss what separates goals that we achieve from those that we don't. Caitlin, thank you so much for being with us. Thank you, Matt. It's great this, to be here. This is such, a, I think, an important topic for each of us. What, when you when you think of it, um, just overall, what what makes the difference? Is, I mean, because I know that I could achieve every goal that I want to achieve. That I, but I also could be, you know, faking it. Like I could only be setting goals that are easy for me. What what do, what do you find is the key to uh, what actually makes us achieve a goal versus not achieve a goal? Yes, what we find is it's actually the immediate benefits that you're getting when you're working towards that goal. So if you're trying to go to the gym or you're trying to eat healthy or even um, students studying for an exam, we've looked at that. Um, What really predicts their ability to stick with that, that activity is how much enjoyment, how much immediate benefits they're getting in the moment from working towards that goal. That seems to, to matter a lot. So really, it's more about if you derive, I guess, intrinsic, extrinsic benefit out of the actual act itself? Yeah, yeah. So the, um, you know, whether the activity itself is providing you that enjoyment or if you can find a way to make it more enjoyable, uh, those we have found have been linked to people's ability to actually stick with the the activity. And the thing is, people don't seem to realize that. They don't realize the importance of the immediate benefits when they're working towards their goal. How interesting. And maybe knowing this ahead of time would help us, right? Because then we we might choose our goals more carefully or might set it up in a way that it is more enjoyable. Yeah, I think so. So I think if you could, you know, the delayed benefit of the reason like you're going to go to the gym in the first place to lose weight or to get in shape, that's important. But then once you're actually at the gym, if you could think about how it's fun for you or how you can get some sort of pleasure out of it. Maybe you're listening to music while you're working out. Um, That is a way to sort of derive this immediate positive experience that's going to matter for persistence. That's so funny. Is it, um, I guess this is just human nature, right? If we, like, I I, honestly, I can exercise if I can watch Netflix. It's easy for Mm me. It's just, but really what I know is really happening is it's all about the Netflix. (laughs) It's pretty pathetic. Yeah, but I think, I mean, you can use that to sort of harness that, that experience to help you, right? So if you find that that's one of the things that you really like when you're working out, then you should allow yourself to have that. I think 
um, sometimes people, they set up goals and they say, you know, I'm going to eat really healthy. I'm only going to eat salads from here on out. And that's kind of a mistake because if you're not factoring in the pleasure, it's going to be really hard to stick with that uh, that goal. Is Does the pleasure need to be, is it a physiological pleasure? Is it, you know... Um, deriving benefit of, you know, what you're tasting versus um, the, could it be an intrinsic pleasure? Does it matter if it's extrinsic or intrinsic? Yeah. So that's, this paper is, is um, especially sort of looking at that divide, whether the benefits coming actually from the activity, like you're just, you know, you're, you really like running or you're getting those endorphins or if it's coming from outside the activity, like sort of the Netflix example, that's not anything about running, but it's still, changing the experience of running. And so uh, I think in this paper, we show that either way, it really, um, it doesn't matter if it's coming from the activity itself or external to the activity. If you can find, you know, pleasure in the activity that's intrinsic, that'll help. But if you could also add in something like the Netflix or the, you know, listening to music, that's also going to work. Hmm. Uh, But the important thing here, I think, is you're doing it for the long-term goal. So I'm not saying like eat, you know, just eat food that tastes good. It's like if you're trying to lose weight, you need to eat food that's good for you, but also that you enjoy, now, if that makes sense. Yeah, but, but so help me with this, because some people would say, but the joy, really, Caitlin, is looking in the mirror uh, an hour or whatever, uh, two days later and seeing that you're losing weight. But you're mm-hmm. saying that kind of long-term goal isn't really as likely to keep you in the game as actually enjoying the activity somehow. Yeah. Yeah. And that's a good point. So the, you know, looking at yourself, looking at the progress that you're making, um, seeing that change in the mirror, that I think is part of sort of the delayed benefit. So you get that as an outcome of your workout, right? If you put in the time at the gym, then you get that. And that's, I'm not trying to say that's not important because of course that's the whole reason that you're, you're going to the gym in the first place. Right. Uh, but but it's hard to to use that when you're actually there on the treadmill. It's it's hard to find motivation in in that because it's not really accessible to you. Yeah. You know, it's it's something that you'll get later. It really it sounds like what you're talking about is motivation, right? So motivation um, to keep doing the activity really means you have to derive some benefit in the activity, and if you you have to make the connection to the real time activity. Because if yeah, you're not connected, definitely. then you're not going to stay motivated to it. Mm-hmm. So I guess really then, if if my long-term goal is to lose 30 pounds, um, all I need to do if I really want to be effective at this is find a means to the 30-pound weight loss that is beneficial and der- I derive benefit doing. Yep, yep, that's exactly it. Um, so, you know, you could – you work out with Netflix, you can work out with a friend, any way to make that that working towards that goal more motivating, more enjoyable for you would help you to achieve that. Hmm. And I mean, mm-hmm. honestly, if if I'm more motivated by Netflix than talking to another human, um, if that <laughs> if that were the case, then that in and of itself being caught up in a, a series and I'm only going to allow myself to watch this series while I'm exercising that that could be immensely motivating. Now, so then, um, when I when I think of this, th- this makes total sense, right? It's, it makes total sense. So why do people not just do this naturally? What mistake are we making? Yeah, so I think the the mistake that people make is that when they're planning their goal pursuit, when they're planning their next workout, they don't think about 
the immediate benefit. They don't realize it's going to be important for their persistence. They're focused on the delayed benefit, right? They're thinking about the reason I go to the gym, maybe it's to lose weight, maybe it's to get in shape. And they're not thinking, oh, you know, I really need to make my workout enjoyable. Otherwise, it won't be something that I stick with. Um, so it's sort of that that gap. The reason why you're pursuing the activity is not the same as the reason that you stick with it in the moment. Hmm. Isn't it? It's funny, too, because we this would be really important stuff for every, you know, ther- what do they call them, like exercise coach, um, trainer to, to to help them because you might be mismotivating people. You might be motivating people more on a delayed benefit than on the immediate benefit. But the immediate benefit is where the rubber meets the road. Yeah, yeah. They they, they maybe are focusing them on that weight loss goal and and not on the yeah the actual like, experience yeah. that they're having. Just mm-hmm. imagine when you walk into your high school reunion and you're in that yeah. red dress you wore in high school. I mean. Like, okay, yeah, that'll be great someday, but right. I need a marshmallow today. Mm-hmm. That's cool. Exactly. What yeah. What made you want to study this, Caitlin, of all the things you could be studying at the University of Chicago? So I'm really interested in uh, consumer goal pursuit and motivation, and uh, I thought that it seemed in the literature people were kind of neglecting this this immediate experience, right, like sort of the marshmallow study that like you were mentioning in the in the beginning. People are saying, no, like immediate experiences are actually going to tempt us away from our goals, right? But I thought maybe there's a way to actually harness this and harness the the fun to actually help work towards the goal. So it's not that I'm, you know, going to go watch Netflix and not work out, but you can actually, you can pair those together. Potentially, you can um, harness these immediate rewards to, to help motivate people. Well, and it seems like, boy, I never thought of it this way, but... You're also talking at the at the Booth School of Business. You're talking consumer activity as well. So, boy, if I wanted to motivate more shopping, then it would behoove me as a company to find ways to make sure you're enjoying it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and the same thing with um, you know things like I think it's really important for retaining customers, like repeat purchases. Mm. That the the experience is maybe what's going to help people to stay with your company or stay with your service. Uh, they might be signing up for, you know, delayed benefits, like maybe getting a promotion. That's what they, that's what attracts them. But what's going to keep them actually is that experience that they're having huh. at the moment. And maybe I guess is that how we should hire? That makes a lot of sense too. That if I'm hiring, um, I want to maybe make sure that they that they're going to fit into the immediate benefit packaging of our current system. Not just the delayed yeah. thing. They're going to want the goals. They may want the long-term goals, the 401ks, but in the end, which are kind of delayed benefits of a, of a job, but there's immediate benefits that they've got to really bite off on. Mm-hmm. Yep. So we've looked at this also with, yeah, with people who uh, are thinking about their current job versus a future job, what they value and what, what's important to them. Um, we find similar results there. So in the moment, people really value the connection that they have with others and their, you know, whether you get along with your colleagues, that's what's important. Uh, but when you're thinking about your next job, you're not really thinking about that. You're thinking about, like you said, like the pay package. It's so true. And uh, I just bought a car as well. And when I bought the car, it's funny. I was, I, all of my goals were about like the delayed goals. Am I going to, is it going to be a good investment? Is it a smart buy? Will I retain its value? Will it retain its value? But what I'm now frustrated with about the car is some of the lack of immediate benefits, some of the things mm-hmm. that I want right now in the car that have nothing to do with 
well, yeah, it's going to have a great resale value. Right, right, exactly. Great, because I want my seats aren't even heated. So how am I going (laughs) to heat my seat when I'm cold? (laughs) We're pitiful, Caitlin, pitiful. Hey, um, let's do this. Let's take a break and come back, and then why don't you walk us through some just some some good things we should be asking, thinking about when it comes to setting these reasonable kind of uh, these immediate type of goals. We're again we're speaking with PhD candidate Caitlin Woolley, who is a candidate at the University of Chicago Booth School of Business, and she'll be uh, joining the marketing marketing faculty at Cornell University this summer as an assistant professor. Great lessons about life and goal setting. Stick with us. Welcome back, friends. Today we're talking about goal setting and what separates goals uh, that we achieve from those that we don't achieve. Well, apparently one of the keys to uh, the goals that we achieve are we actually derive immediate benefit in the moment um, by when we're doing the goal. We actually see the benefit and how it impacts us and we like it. So when we like doing it and we see the benefit, it helps us uh, you know, stick to the task Till it sticks to you. To join us to talk about this and her research is Caitlin Woolley. Caitlin is a PhD candidate at the University of Chicago Booth School of Business and will soon be on the marketing faculty at Cornell University as an assistant professor there. And uh, she wrote an article for Harvard Business Review that we are going over. Goal setting, what separates goals we achieve from the goals we don't. Caitlin, thank you again for being with us. Thank you, Matt. So um, when we talk about it, I guess one key is we've got to have some immediate benefit. Uh, that keeps us sticking to the goal uh, over the long term. Did you find anything else that was key to setting these goals? Yes, we find a, I found a couple of things. Um, one thing that we see is that the, the delayed benefit does have some importance. So I'm not trying to say, I guess, here that the, the immediate benefit is the only thing that matters. For one, the, the delayed benefits what's get what's getting people to initiate their goal in the first place. So you have to value that long-term outcome, uh, getting a good grade or uh, doing well on your exam. Um, and and what also we, we found that I was kind of surprised by was that because uh, initially in the phase it was only the immediate benefit that seemed to be predicting persistence. Mm-hmm. But if you look across all five of the studies that we have, the delayed benefit does matter somewhat uh, to, to help with the goal achievement. So it's not the case that the, the immediate benefit is the only thing that matters, but yeah. it's also um, having that delayed goal that you're, that you're able to get that's going to predict your persistence. I guess the delayed benefit is, um, the, is what actually initiates the goal making because you're like, I want to lose weight, so now I need to exercise, and I'll find immediate benefit in exercising somehow. But you, so you, so to some degree, you've got to you – you got to want the delayed benefit. What do you did you have you found anything about people that just don't? I mean, are there some people that just don't set goals? They just, eh, mm-hmm. I just don't want to go there. Yeah, so that's yeah, that's a good point. So in our research, we've looked at mostly people who do value the long term goal because that's sort of you have to have that buy in, like you said, to sort of start to start working towards it. Uh, but I think, I mean, even if you don't have a goal of eating healthy if you are if you 
you know, find some vegetables that are tastier than others and you're going to eat more of the ones that, that taste good. So I think, uh, like we have a vegetable study in, in our paper, I think um, it's the immediate benefit could still sort of help with these these positive behaviors, but it might not be totally there if you don't have that buy-in with the delayed benefit. Hmm. Is What about just the reasonableness of the goal? Can a goal be too audacious, too out there, that it's it actually becomes, you know, disincentivized. You, you're you unmotivated to do it. Yeah, definitely. And I think, I think that's kind of the problem that, um, that happens oftentimes, right? So you're setting a goal and you might be too strict with it initially, right? So you want to run every day for like the next month and then that's just not really attainable for you. Um, and then you're going to, to drop out. So you have to be able to find something that's, uh, that's, I guess, within your reach. And I think that's part of why the immediate benefits where that comes in, because uh, if you if you set that goal that you're going to try and run every day, it might not be something that you can actually fit into your schedule or that you even really want to make time for. Um, so if you're able to, to work towards something that you're enjoying, then you'll make that time for it and you'll, you'll find a way to, um, to push through with it. Hmm. Is, um, I, I mean, I, I guess, how much, how important of a part does the environment play in, I guess, your one thing you're saying is the environment needs, you need to derive benefit from the activity or the, or the environment, the situation you're in. But it seems like everybody's so different. Like, I, I personally don't want to exercise with people. And I don't know what it is. I think it's like I, I'd rather go into my happy place to, um, to try to force my body to do things than have to try to create a conversation while I'm forcing my body to do things. No, definitely. And I think that's, you know, this is where it kind of it gets customizable to the person, right? So sometimes people ask me, like, what's the key to, to achieving your goal? Uh, but it's going to depend on what works for you, right? So if you are the type of person that you just want to really relax during your workout, then maybe you'll do yoga and you'll find relaxation there. If you really want some sort of high impact or high involved activity with other people, you could join a sports team. And so it's not, uh, I guess every trick isn't going to work for everyone, but the, the overall takeaway is to find what works for you and what's going to bring you that, that pleasure in the moment, that experience that uh, is rewarding um, to help you stick with your goal. Because you really have to choose the right activity you have to kind of choose the right conditions for you. You have to, I guess, decide the social setting you want it to, to, to possess. I mean, there's really a lot of factors to what makes it immediately beneficial for you. And, I mean, I've seen – have you ever seen a situation where, you know, one person came to play golf with you and all of a sudden it didn't seem as immediately beneficial? <laughs> <laughs> so it could just be one factor is off and it immediately can ruin your goal setting. Yeah, well, I see that here in Chicago, too, because the winter, it's really hard yeah. to do anything outside. And so it's much easier to get out when it's a nice day out. <laughs> yeah. So one factor is off. I mean, isn't it funny? You can exercise really well in the summer, and it's, like, amazing because that one condition is there. But in midwinter, you're just – I guess it's just time to pack on the pounds. Um, mm -hmm. What do you – so when, as you've gone through this, where do you see that you're going to take the research going forward? Yeah, so that's, um, there's a couple of projects I'm working on now. Uh, one, we're actually looking at immediate negative goals. Um, so, so whether, uh, or not immediate negative goals, but immediate negative experiences and whether there's any, uh, any motivating power in that. 
Um, we're also looking at how we can use rewards to uh, increase enjoyment. So does it, is it the case that you, you know, you're working towards your goal and you're getting some immediate benefit? Does that actually change how you perceive that activity then if that activity is giving you a, like a, a delayed benefit later on? Interesting, uh, so yeah. Kind of some on, yeah, ongoing projects that, um, that I've been working on. So, so that's an interesting point too then um, is delayed. So we're talking about delayed goals, but so delayed feedback versus immediate feedback um, mm-hmm. is, 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 could be possibly a motivator as well. Mm-hmm. If the feedback comes too late in the cycle, you may, it may not keep you uh, engaged as if it's – that's why you know at the end of something fun that you've done, you know it was fun and you're thinking, I didn't want that to end. Let's do that again. Yeah, so I think it's very much related to, to this work here. Um, and we also had some work where we were actually trying to to look at in, like ways that people could make the activity more fun. So kind of like I was talking about before, um, can you actually change your experience so that it's more enjoyable for you? So sort of choosing workouts, choosing one that's more fun for you, or uh, like listening to music or eating snacks when you're working on homework. Is that going to get you to stick with your homework more? Um, so it's actually trying to change behavior by making the experience more enjoyable. Hmm. You know, because um, going to your negative benefit, uh, so I've had uh, I've had basically a gallbladder problem. Not to get too personal with you, Caitlin, but a gallbladder problem. And but what's interesting is your body gives you immediate feedback about something. Mm-hmm. And so mm-hmm. when I'm feeling good and I'm and I'm not having the gallbladder issue, my brain thinks, "Hey, just try, just try the enchilada, just try it." <laughs> like, what's the worst thing? That could happen. Just try it. But um, and it's funny because my body on oh, my brain is like, I don't know. I'm pretty sure enchilada has fat in it and you're not supposed to have fat in your diet, but maybe try it then. in the So then a second later, I try it and now I'm sick. And in the sickness, I'm like, why did you try that? Right, it's, right. You're, it's so powerful what you're feeling and how that impacts your choices. Definitely. And I, I think you can, you see that a lot with the medical domain too, with people adhering to medicine. So once you start to feel better, you don't think that you need to take the medicine anymore. Right. right? And so that's, yeah, that's sort of on, on similar lines. Definitely. So in a way, I guess, but it's almost like you can't harness the negative very long. Um, I mean, because as long as you're no longer feeling the negative, you, I mean, everybody has gone to a restaurant where they got sick or whatever. But it really doesn't last very long before you're thinking, hey, maybe we got to go back there. Like that was an anomaly. It, d- does the I negative hold a – does it just – does the negative not last as long as the positive? Yeah, I'm not, I'm not sure. So this is sort of very early on stages. And so this is something that we're, we're trying to unpack too. Because on the other hand, you, you do find that people remember negative things yeah. more. Oh, you think, right. Out. So yeah, yeah. But maybe – yeah. Isn't it weird, especially when it comes to our health? But um, and so many of us, like I had a really bad. I went and shot a video for a workout. Anyway, it was a nightmare, and um, it was so negative for me just to have to go through it publicly. A and then just sweating, but thinking I'm going to die and have a heart attack at the same time. Um, all of that made it so I cannot go to this one place to work out anymore. I just can't go there. Because it's, cause it's stuck with you and you think uh-huh. you can't get that out. Yeah, yeah. like, get it out of my system. But <laughs> meanwhile, the, the place had nothing to do with it, but it's, it's just the symbol that I made out of the place. 
Like that is the mm-hmm. sign of all things that are bad. I guess we do that as we're all trying to make it through our goals. Well, uh, Caitlin, this is cool research. Uh, We wish you the best of luck. Keep it up as you get to Cornell as well. Um, Again, her name is Caitlin Woolley, Ph.D. candidate at the University of Chicago Booth School of Business, on her way to the faculty at Cornell University and uh, helping us be better. The article is called Goal Setting, What Separates Goals We Achieve from Goals That We Don't. We'll take a break, folks, when we come back. Lauren Simpson will be giving us an emotional intelligence quiz. All that ahead, folks. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Stick with us. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. Hey, a little uh, quiz show music for you. Uh, Lauren Simpson joins us, and I was asking her really quickly at the break, what's your mate? But she, you're sticking with your maiden name, Lauren I, Simpson. I am. I, I've grown up my whole life with my last name, and I figured it probably doesn't matter until we have kids. So we're going to sort it out then. That's right. Well, it, but, so Jeff didn't ruin the name Simpson for you? No. Actually, he just stole it. That's all he did. He stole it. <laughs> Wait, how old are you? <laughs> I Je- think Jeff's I might been, be a little older yeah. than you. Jeff's been Yeah, you probably. He's been using that name for a long time. He has, but I see actually there's a girl on the wall. There's a girl named Lauren Simpson who yeah. won an award, and every time I pass it, I'm just so jealous. It's you, but you know, people think it's you. People think it's I like, won the award. Lauren, you're Lauren amazing. Simpson. I've been here 10 years. Well, Lauren is going to do a little quiz for us on emotional intelligence, one of my favorite subjects. I am. Yeah, But maybe I won't know as much as I thought I know. Maybe not. So we'll this find is out. a true test. Yeah. Okay, well, the answers are over here. Because we hear emotional intelligence all the time. It's more valuable than intelligence intelligence. Right. We learned that you actually make more money in work, and you can climb the ladder faster if you've got emotional intelligence. Totally. All right. So the the first question is, 40% of our happiness level is in our control. True or false? 40% of our happiness level is in our control. I would say yes, at least. That is correct. Yes. The yes. other 60% has to do with our environment and stuff that happens. Yep. Can't control that. that. Control. Can't control the weather. Can't control your pancreas exploding in your gut. You can control how you look at it, though. I can control what I've eaten for 20 years. <laughs> <laughs> and speaking of weather, that's actually the next question. Weather can influence our feelings, true or false? Oh, true. Totally. Definitely. Now, now it's it, why, though? Uh, is, it, is it actual? It's the it, sunlight. Sunlight, yeah. Oxytocin or uh, dopamine. What's it called? Um, serotonin that comes from the sun as well. Yeah. But also just, I wonder if the pressure, like barometric pressure. You know how people like, they start like having an ache in their leg right. when it's going to snow? Well, I wonder if elevation then has to do with that. No, totally. Because my mom it just is right now in San Francisco area. And she has a breathing problem here in Utah. But when she gets to San Francisco, she can breathe fine. So it's like we need to now move her to San Francisco. Right. And she doesn't want to go. (laughs) She wants to stay with her family. No, we're sending you off to San Francisco. She would be lovely there. She would become the new San Francisco treat. (laughs) She totally would. (laughs) Ching, ching. The little bells on the trolley. Give us more, Lauren. This is cool. Well, you're doing well. The University of Florida study found that the smell of blank has a positive influence on your emotions. Uh, Sweet rolls. (laughs) 
Wrong. Uh, okay, now, so the smell of... What makes you happy? What, what smell? Springtime. Something's in the air. Something you get your mom for Mother's Day. Uh, sweet rolls. Um, I can't get sweet rolls out of my mind. Flowers, Matt. Oh, flowers. Does it really? <laughs> yeah, flowers can make you happier. That's totally true. Lavender. And here we thought they were just dying on our kitchen table. Yeah, that's funny. Now, I hope my wife is listening because she doesn't like flowers. Really? Flowers make me happy. You've got your cake flower. You've got your I white flower. cake flower. Mm-hmm. You've got your coconut flower. Mm-hmm. And then perfumes. Yeah. Perfumes can make you happy, too. Oh, no, really? Yeah. Just certain types of perfumes. I didn't per- really list. Probably the expensive ones that I can't afford. But perf- Oh, I did not think a perfume would make you happy. That's, <laughs> it's interesting. But flowers, I the can totally The smell actually can. I like it. Okay. This is good. Good learning. All right. Certain foods can make you happy because they release tryptophan. Yes. Okay. Can you name just one of these foods? Turkey. Turkey. Turkey is one of them. But what else releases tryptophan? Uh, nuts, chicken, milk that's in your cake. Uh, yeah. I can't eat cake. Cake is what set me off the other night. Well, you can blend it up. No, I can't have anything Yeah, liquefy it. it. Mm. No, because it's, it's the fat. Oh, don't even say the word cake. Oh, first, <laughs> well, we know what we're going to bring you after your recovery. Okay, yeah. Oh, for sure. When I'm all healthy, bring me the cake. Okay, so most it. people, they know that Denmark's the happiest country in the world. Do you Wrong. know... <laughs> Do you know where the U.S. ranks in that list? 30th. No. Higher? Wrong. Higher. 20th. A little higher. 15th. 17th. Really? Yeah. <laughs> well, that's interesting. Well, it's actually six places behind last year. We're so slipping. We're slipping. We're getting less happy. Oh, I'm sorry. It's because of the show. Is that what it is? We're not doing our job. <laughs> Focus! <laughs> Okay, that's good news. I mean, not good news. Good news for Denmark, for heaven's sake. Right, okay. Denmark's keeping... This is the second year in a row it's gotten first. And you think that that doesn't seem like it's always sunshiny and perfect and... We're not really sure what Denmark's doing over there. I think there. it's just they've got a cool I, life. I wonder if they're just optimistic. Someone hands out the survey and... Yeah, sure. They say, yeah, I'm, I'm happy. Sure. I like it. Okay, what okay. else? So, officially, in, I guess, scientific worlds there are 19 smiles they can categorize these by the way your muscles move and yeah. other things can you name one of them uh the cheesy grin sure <laughs> actually they don't have a lot of very scientific names for these 19 smiles the only one that most people know is the duchene smile so that's the authentic oh really real the full-on smile when you're super happy and someone tells just the they best call joke it duchene? you've ever heard duchene smile Oh, wow. And There's then the, the other ones are closer to what you said, like the polite smile, the, yeah, the, the cheesy nervous. smile, the nervous <laughs> smile. Mischievous. There's Jeff's smile. That's the mischievous smile. <laughs> like he's about to push a button. <laughs> That's cool. Lauren, give us one more. One more quick one. All right. Um, you know, actually, that was all my questions. That was it. So you, by the way, the nice to <laughs> smile. smile. No, you let, like. me tally, let me tally up your score here. Let's yeah, see how you, how do. you uh, did. Oh. Not a winner today, Matt. Sorry. Oh. It was cannot. really close. It was really close. The guy cannot Next add. Time. Lauren Simpson, thank you so much. Great job. Fun. Great quizery. Quiz- quizery. We will take a break, my friends. Come back. Hour number three up next. Stick with us. This is the Matt Townsend Show. This is 
the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Welcome back, friends. Happy Tuesday to you. Dr. Matt here, your coach, your guide on the side. Boy, oh boy, have we got a great hour for you. Today we'll be replaying an interview about emotional complexity. Where do the emotions come from? And it depends. A deep, deep, dark place. A deep, dark place, but it depends what where you're from. Some cultures believe that the emotion comes from inside of themselves. A Others spirit believe animal? it's from outside. You're causing my emotion. Really? You make me unhappy. Mm. Hmm. It really is a very interesting discussion we will be going um, undertaking uh, with Igor Grossman as he talks about a, a bunch, really, of, of different issues about emotional oh, strength. And, and a specific element of the interview to listen for is when Matt realizes that Waterloo University is not in England but in Canada. Yeah. That's the second half of the interview. It's kind of fun. That's a great – it was a great surprise for me. By the way, do either of you know what your spirit animal is? Water buffalo. Really? No. Just... Oh, mine. I have no idea what my spirit animal is. How do you? Hmm. How does one know from the Chinese calendar? There's an app. Really? You put in your social security number and your routing <laughs> number to your checking account. Credit card numbers. <laughs> Hold it. Is it through Nairobi? Yes. That's not. He's a prince, and he I has don't a, remember. an offer for you. Huh, I think I heard about that. But again. once you plug all that info in, you also get a million dollars. Really? Quite the deal. What have I been doing? I've been playing on the wrong apps. By the way, I'm getting quite bored with Townton Abbey. Mm. I don't know the why. life cycle of the game. 145,000 people in my town, many, and I'm just tired of it. Does it tell you how many days you've been playing? I don't know. It'd be interesting to know how long that arc of Probably. this is the greatest thing. I can't put this down to. Eh, don't really care anymore. Yeah. Well, but, but let me just not to brag. I'm at a hundred percent happiness. My people are totally yeah. happy. Wrong. I, I collect about some thirteen thousand dollars in taxes. There's every some day. setting you have switched on that you should probably turn that off so it's more realistic. No, it's no, it doesn't work that way. Sim City doesn't work that way. It's just that I do such a good job. Are you playing with the rose-colored glasses setting? Mm. Yeah, it's a filter. Yeah. Rose-colored glasses filter. Yeah, yeah. Everything's beautiful in Townsend Abbey. So anyway, uh, everyone's still alive. Just in case you were wondering, I haven't put in anything new because. I have a, I have like ninety thousand dollars in cash. I just tired of building stuff. Mm. Maybe it's just the pancreas. Anyway, we'll get to all that fun. Plus, of course, a driver who armed himself with a bat in a road rage attack instantly regrets it. We'll did you see to- that video, Terry? I did. Really? Seemed fake to me. Well, and nobody knows fake videos better than you do. What is that supposed to be? Because you've got the show screen cleaning. Oh, I see. Wait, what? And you you clean off all the fake videos. It's really not what the show's about, but okay. Okay. Uh, United flight delayed also after a scorpion repeatedly emerged from a customer's clothing. It was a pet. Uh, It was a pet? No. Okay, we will talk about that as well. Just making stuff up. I mean, we, we've talked a lot about snakes on planes, but not scorpions on planes. Mm-mm. That's a different franchise. But can you imagine a scorpion coming out of the person sitting in between you 
and someone else and a scorpion comes out of their shirt, that's just a free for all. That's not high that's not high budget enough for Samuel L. Jackson. Yeah. That's like the poor man's Sam Jackson movie. Yeah. That's too bad because, you know, scorpions they have a place too. Right? Not everything's about a snake. I mean, snakes are great and all, but what about your little friend with the fifth surprise stinger on the tail? What about him, Curly Tail? Sure, he comes in and out of your pockets as you're on an airplane, as you're sharing some peanuts, maybe a pretzel or two. Next thing you know, he pops his little head out, and they have to land a plane in a different state than you were headed to. (laughs) It's just a scorpion, folks. Sure, with a deadly toxin and its stinger. Sure. But But he only uses it if you deserve it. That's right. He doesn't want to sting you any more than you want to be stung. What about the little people? That's the silliest thing I've ever heard. Totally agree. Sean Spicer. We uh, now will get to the headlines with Terry South. Terry, what do we need to worry about that we're not focused on? The Supreme Court has declined to weigh in on a controversial North Carolina voter ID law, thereby leaving in place the federal appeals court ruling against certain portions that were criticized for targeting, quote, African-Americans with almost surgical precision. This out of the New York Times. Uh, While it's not customary for the court to explain why it has declined to hear a case, Chief Justice John Roberts uh, Jr. indicated the issues had to do with the question of who was authorized to file the appeal on behalf of the states and not a uh, passing of a uh, ruling by the actual court. So they're not saying they're for or against this law. They're just not going to jump on it. There's some legal issues that aren't there, and so they're going to leave it the way it is. And um, as as I read there, it wasn't... uh, wasn't upheld in the lower courts. Uh, fast, let's see, fasting for as little as three days can regenerate the entire immune system, even in elderly. Scientists have found in a breakthrough described as remarkable. Although fasting diets have been criticized by nutritionists for being unhealthy, new research suggests starving the body kickstarts stem cells into producing new white blood cells, which fight off infection. Scientists at the University of Southern California say the discovery could be particularly beneficial for people suffering from damaged immune systems, Matt, mm-hmm. such as cancer patients on chemotherapy. It could also help the elderly, Matt, whose immune systems become less effective as they age, making it harder for them to fight off even common diseases. The researchers say fasting flips a regenerative regenerative, uh, switch, which prompts stem cells to create brand new white blood cells, essentially regenerating the entire immune system. Wow. Okay. So more fasting? So no eating for three days for a new you. Uh, Done. (laughs) Been there. Done that. Other news, human trash has taken over a remote, uninhabited island in the South Pacific. A study published Monday in the Journal of Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences revealed that even though Henderson Island takes about 13 days to reach when traveling by ship from New Zealand and is rarely visited by even scientists, it's home to nearly 18 tons of man-made trash. That's the highest density of debris reported anywhere in the world, NPR reports. Popular Science reported that every square meter of the beach gets around 27 new pieces of junk added to its collection every day. The researchers noted that Henderson Island's trash pile accounts for only 1.98 seconds worth of the annual global production of plastic. What percentage? 1.98%. Wow. Or 1.98 seconds. Of all the plastic that's produced. So this island, remote, out in yeah. the middle of nowhere, but because of currents 
and you know how it works. They just all this trash is being collected on the beaches, and you and they have photos, and the beaches are covered in you know water bottles and all kinds of stuff. That's crazy. Yeah, out in the middle of nowhere. Is um, boy, if they could just somehow make money on that, go recycle the trash. Yeah, possibly. But if all, if all they have to do is dispose of it, that's not any good. No. Hmm. Okay. So we'll figure that out. Or no one will. Who knows? Uh, and finally, there's a new movie coming out called The Mummy. Uh, yeah. With the, Tom Cruise. Well, oh, they missed oh. the Mother's Day cutoff for that. Yeah, they thought, should have released it over Mother's wasn't, Day. I thought that was the the, the, the one, British version. The British version yeah. of Mommy no, Dearest. It's, it's the, yeah. mo- the monster movie, The Mummy. June 9th comes out. Tom Cruise stars. The most intriguing uh, character in the movie is played by Russell Crowe. Really? Right? The Oscar winner is going to play Dr. Jekyll. Oh, boy. <gasps> A key figure in the new Universal Monsters film universe. Wow! They uh, they're 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 saying his character is like the Nick Fury, who's the guy in the Avengers movies that organizes and brings all the Avengers together. Uh-huh, yeah. Russell Crowe as Doctor Jekyll is going to bring all the monsters together. You got to watch Scary. out for Doctor Jekyll. Uh, he can become unhinged. At times, not unlike the actor who portrays him. That's why it's perfect typecast. So it says it reveals is quite literally, of course, because Mr. Hyde is the evil side of the classic character. Hyde makes a brief appearance at the end of the video about the mummy, which also explains how Jekyll and Hyde fit into that world. The writer of the movie, Alex Kurtzman, previously explained that Jekyll's group, there's a name called like Prodigium, is the yeah. name of this supergroup. Yeah. It's kind of the connective tissue within the Universal's planned new world of gods and monsters, which includes movies about Frankenstein, Dracula, the Wolfman, and others. Huh. It says, we wanted to understand the context of the mummy in a larger world, and we wanted to know that monsters existed for millennia, and we knew that the story evolved from there. It was going to be an organization that was maybe cataloging them, following them, collecting them, them being the monsters. Wow. That would determine the good ones from the bad ones. That was sort of a keeper of the secret history. So he's he's the, he's the monster keeper. So – you have the mummy coming out. There, there, there'll probably be a Frankenstein, Dracula, Wolfman, and other movies. They will all collect together and have their own super sort of monster collective team huh. to do something. Oh boy, of, I wonder if there will have any merchandising. Yeah, pretty much. So Universal has all these old monsters that are just kind of sitting in their vaults, monster movie characters, yeah, just, and they want to use them some way. So they're going to make a super team out of them. Are you sure? I, I saw the trailer. I don't think it was called The Mummy. I think it was called Mission Impossible 6. It kind of felt that way. He's flying out of airplanes. Is he getting that old? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> are you talking Tom Cruise? Yeah. Well, that's what I don't, don't understand. Is The Mummy going to continue as part of this, this super universal yeah. monster, or is it Tom Cruise that continues? I'm not I, sure how that works. I wonder if they could resurrect monsters to make them interesting in today's day and age. Yeah. Because I'm not too attracted to mummies. No. Or Dracula. Dracula or Wolfman. You want to be attracted to the thing that terrifies you. Yeah. I mean, like, can Hmm. you actually draw me in? See, I liked Harry Potter, for example, because that took me to a world I didn't know. But I've seen a lot of monster movies growing up, and I don't know that I can go back there. You don't know the world of exhuming tombs? Pardon? Huh? Exum- exhuming tombs. Tomb exhum is, that are banned, right, from didn't Seattle? It, didn't you see a doctor about that last week? Yeah. You're exhuming tombs? Oh, boy. <laughs> Did he ever exhume? 
Yeah, so My they're going to they're going to have a series of movies and they connect them all and we'll have this universal monster universe of movies. Okay, I that, like it. Well, we'll see. Okay, so so tell me this isn't the best setting for a monster movie. You're on a flight, let's mm. just say a United flight, which sadly already has It is United, but go ahead, yes. It's already a little scary. Um, and the flight was delayed for hours after reports of a scorpion crawling from a passenger's clothes. Mm. The beleaguered airline's second scorpion-related incident in less than a month. Ugh. According to the site uh, FlightAware, United Flight 1035 from Houston to Quito was delayed for over three hours at George Bush Intercontinental Airport as customers were ushered onto a different plane before finally taking off. Passenger Daniel Duenas tweeted, the captain of my flight just told us it's a scorpion on the plane. Uh, uh, Hey, everybody, we're going to be delayed for a minute. We've got scorpions on the plane. (laughs) Just uh, sit back, listen to your flight attendants. We'll be fine. (laughs) Like that is the worst thing you can say. We will not be bringing out the drink cart. Because, you know, they always follow that up saying we're not bringing out the snacks yet. We're going to need to leave the drink cart uh, where it is because there's a scorpion somewhere hid behind it. (laughs) Please, if you'll refrain from freaking out and just stay in your seats, that'd be much appreciated. Uh Uh-oh. You trying to find scorpion sounds? Yeah, we've got a scorpion sound effect right here. Get over here! That's from uh, Mortal Kombat. That's a different kind of scorpion. Okay, that's a talking scorpion it's from a, Mortal Kombat. It's a ninja. I think he sounded like that. Uh, listen to this. The venomous creature fell from the overhead bin and landed in a man's hair Whoa. as he was returning home from vacation with his wife. It's the scorpion not, or the man? The, the scorpion. <laughs> scorpion was on vacation with his wife. What do you do when the guy in front of you like has a scorpion in his hair? Um, sir? Whack! You, you get out your, <laughs> your phone and you start filming it. You don't help. Yeah. You film it. It's, that's how you, you function in today's society is always with your phone You first. know, then, then he's going to flick it and it's going to land in some lady's tea. Yeah. And then she's going to hit the tea and it's game on. Then it's like, it's just ugly. It's like every slapstick comedy out there. Yeah. yeah. It's all fun and games. Whoever ends up with a scorpion at the end wins. Top potato, yeah. Um, okay. And again, I don't know that – by the way, they caught it. How hard could it be to catch a scorpion on a plane? Where is it going to go? Right. Especially when you're batting it around the entire cabin. So wait, were they airborne or were they – They were airborne. Ah. Apparently they caught it and then they had to flush it down the blue toilet. Mm. Which, by the way – led to a completely uh, – another unrelated incident called Blue Scorpion. Have you ever heard of that one? No. That's uh, when the scorpions like, come out of the blue water on an airliner now, and they are ticked. It's like, now po- they're it's, mu- like, it's like Pokemon, right? Yeah. I think yeah. they become mutated at that yeah. point. Yeah. yeah. Uh, you got to catch them all though. You know what? United <laughs> can't catch a break. You know? First they had the They can incident. catch a scorpion though. They sure can. And this, this is the second scorpion incident. I know. Right. And so plus you, the third. The, remember, they tried to get that guy off. Well, just, yeah. Had nothing to do with a scorpion, but. His pinchers were. <laughs> they were. Then they had that family from uh, Hawaii. Boy. They had the different seats. It's a hard. It's off. been a hard season United's for United's pretty. Yeah, that's why their CEO is not going to be the CEO here yeah. next year. So. Did you hear they have a new logo, though? What's that? Scorpion. There we go. Pretty neat. Put that on the airplane. Like Frontier. Hey, um, let's take a break. When we come back, we will be talking about 
the countries where people are the most emotionally complex, which country, which culture creates the most emotional complexity? Stick with us. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. You know, we all know that classic scene with the patient lying on the psychologist's couch. And we know exactly what the psychologist is going to ask, right? So how do you feel? Is such a simple question, right? It's just basic. But the answer might be quite complex. Um, Depending on where you live in the world, you probably realize that the answer of how you feel might be different uh, based on your situation or your upbringing. But have you ever wondered that um, a bigger factor might just simply be whether you live in Russia or Japan? Do they evaluate how they manifest their emotions and feel about things? Are their feelings, you know, is their approach to emotion different than here in the United States? Dr. Uh, Igor Grossman joins us. He's an assistant professor of psychology in the social psychology area at the University of Waterloo. And he conducted a study on how emotional complexity manifests in different cultures. He joins us today to discuss the countries where people are the most emotionally complex. Dr. Grossman, welcome to the Matt Townsend Show. Thank you, Matt. Thank you. This is a, to me, this is a really interesting uh, study you've done because I just thought, you know, emotions were universal, basic to humans, and we all looked at them or thought about them the same way. But it sounds like your study is telling us that uh, depending on your culture, and uh, we might actually have a more complex view of emotion. That's correct. Uh, what we found is that people in different societies uh, seem to report uh, their emotions in somewhat different ways. I mean, even though they all basically may agree on uh, what emotions may be important, what makes them happy, what makes them sad, there's still quite a bit of nuance variability and is that variability i guess it's it it is just based on how they report is it based on their culture oh dr grossman sounds like we have lost that contact for a minute we will um oh yeah we lost it so we'll we'll try to get you back on the line uh as you're calling from waterloo in uh great britain there it's uh it's quite a call. When when I think about this, because I teach when I work with my clients about emotions all of the time, and you can recognize them, and I guess that's what he was saying is in the end, we, we still manifest them, but it's kind of how we describe them. It's how we talk about them. It's how we see these emotions and how they impact us that uh, might be the bigger the bigger impact, which again is is super important too when you think about the fact that um, I used to say that emotion is one of the universal languages, right? It always speaks. So if somebody's mad, if somebody's angry, that emotion will speak to us. Um, we've got Dr. Grossman back on the phone. Dr. Grossman, thank you so much. We uh, Sorry we lost you there. Yeah, sorry, Matt. I don't know what happened here. That's okay. No, <laughs> it's mixed emotions. That's right. Exactly. So talk to us more about what you're finding in your research. So you were saying, I think, that um, we, we, all, we all still have emotion. We all manifest emotion. It's more how people in different countries interpret and communicate about the emotion. 
That's correct. And how people experience, uh, for instance, uh, sadness and uh, happiness, Uh, do they view them as very distinct or do they sort of say, well, this situation may have a little bit of both? So those type of uh, questions are the ones that we try to address in our research. Hmm. I mean, generally also, I have to tell you that many scientists currently uh, view emotions as greatly socially constructed. What it means is that you may have a sense of happiness or sadness, but what exactly do you experience is very much drawn not necessarily from uh, your bodily functions, but also from your interactions with other people. So that you, you face somebody, and by being with this other person, you may start experiencing certain emotions. Hmm. So really, it's, 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 I guess, like a learned behavior through social interaction, and, and, um, and that, I guess that tells us – I mean, I guess we can see that, right? When people are mourning in certain countries, they've learned to mourn a certain way. Right. Uh, the, there are cultural norms that influence uh, how exactly you may express your emotions, but also what exactly you may be feeling may vary uh, dramatically based on um, so-called scripts or the norms uh, that your culture tells you that you learned from your early, early childhood. Um, so some cultures, for instance, don't have uh, words even for some of the emotions that we view as uh, very mundane and everyday life. Hmm. Uh, for instance, uh, in uh, some of the societies in uh, Southeast Asia, in small islands, um, the experience of uh, an expression of anger uh, is viewed as taboo. And so people don't really uh, report feeling angry. Instead of saying, I'm angry at somebody, they start saying that, well, my stomach doesn't feel well. <laughs> so they psychosomatize this experience. Interesting. Yeah. So, I mean, then I guess if, if we – if it's about a stomach ache, then we don't – it's almost like you, I, you might feel like I don't make you angry. Like in the United States, you'll hear the phrase a lot, oh, you make me angry. Do, do they attribute their anger to different places? I mean, in, in the South Pacific, like you were talking about, they don't even use the word anger. But are some countries not even thinking that they cause emotional issues for others? Yeah, well, to some extent, if you have this belief that emotion is at least as much uh, socially constructed, sort of uh, emerges in an interaction uh, as it is internal, you may uh, then have a very different attitude towards uh, such things as anger and where they come from and who is responsible and so on. Wow. That's correct. This is fascinating learning. Um, You also have been able to identify that that some countries are more uh, emotionally complex. What do you mean by that? Right. Uh, So the notion of emotional complexity (laughs) is <laughs> in itself fairly complex yeah. in the sense that the researchers still don't know uh, if there is one unified definition for it. Um, right now, uh, there are at least two distinct ones that we try to examine in our work. Uh, one is uh, coming from uh, this kind of more spiritual traditions of uh, Southeast Asia and East Asia, namely um, talking about your positive 
negative emotions together rather than as opposites. So it's a, some kind of a dialecticism, sort of this yin-yang orientation, that you don't really view everything as black or white or good or bad, but there is a lot of gray. And so that's one of the uh, fairly dominant ways to view um, uh, what uh, is about mixed emotions or emotionally complex experiences. Hmm. And then there is another one, and this other view uh, comes from uh, a clinical research, uh, clinical psychology, psychiatry, where uh, researchers in the Western world have studied um, the ability to differentiate your emotional experiences. So what does that mean? That means that uh, you're able to distinguish among a variety of, say, positive or negative discrete experiences. So for you, it's not all just bad, but you can say, well, this situation, I feel anger, but not so much sadness. In that situation, I feel more sadness, not so much anger. It's not just all together. So you can uh, differentiate what actually you may be feeling in a given situation. And this tendency, the emotional differentiation tendency, has been linked in the clinical literature with uh, all sort of hosts of uh, benefits for regulating your emotions. And those people who are not able to differentiate the experience as well, they, they are not able to quite often function properly. They uh, report being sick more often, uh, having health problems and so on. Hmm. Which I guess too would be, I guess in that more clinical psychiatric view or Western, I guess, ish view is more about the ability then to, own your own religion and control your your your. I mean, sorry, own your own emotion and control your emotion. Yeah, to to some extent uh, uh, that, but also that uh, you are able to really and very precisely tell what you feel. And if you're not able to do that, then you may have a, a problem. But also the the idea behind it and why it may be important this ability to differentiate. I think well, emotions have a lot of power over. Uh, and they, they provide a lot of information for how to handle situations. If you feel anger, you start experiencing uh, um, uh, lots of other things at the same time. You start to prepare yourself to react. Uh, so in many ways, emotions are this kind of tendencies uh, that help us to prepare to react to situations. So if you're able to differentiate well what exactly you may be experiencing instead of putting everything into one basket and just having a, some kind of rule of thumb for everything in your life, then you're better able to live functionally. Hmm. Uh, so that's the idea behind it. Hmm, powerful. Um, really, the, I mean, the, I guess the more we understand emotions, and they are complex, uh, probably the better it's got to be for all of us. We'll take a break. Let's come back, uh, Dr. Grossman, and continue this this learning moment, figuring out more about our emotions. I'm also interested to find out of uh, which which countries you find to be um, the most complex emotionally. Interesting stuff coming from your research there in uh, at Waterloo. And we'll take a break, folks. This is the Matt Townsend Show. We'll be right back. back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. This just in, apparently the University of Waterloo is in Ontario, Canada. 
not in England. The whole time I'm thinking of Waterloo Station. Oh, it's got to be over there somewhere. Nope. It's in Canada. And we're talking to a wonderful professor uh, from there, from the University of um, of Waterloo. Uh, Dr. Igor Grossman is joining us, and he has uh, been doing some research with another professor from the University of Michigan about the countries where people are most emotionally complex. They wrote an article in the Atlantic uh, magazine, um, Atlantic.com, and they're walking us through, actually, uh, Dr. Grossman is walking us through some of this uh, very interesting research on emotion. Dr. Grossman, welcome back to the show. Thank you for having me, Matt. Thanks for being in Canada. (laughs) I had no idea. Hey, um, talk to me about the countries that you found. In the research, I know that um, you studied people from um, all over the place, and one of the things that you found is, I guess, certain countries, students, college students from Russia, U.S., Japan, India, they um, they all they, they expressed their emotions and, and, and talked about their emotions during different experiences. What did you learn? We um, looked at various indicators. So in one of the studies that you just mentioned, uh, we looked at the experiences uh, that people report in their everyday life and uh, how intense do do they report feeling different emotions such as uh, happiness, sadness, and so on in these different uh, experiences from their life. So we had samples from uh, Japan, India, Russia, Germany, UK, and the U.S. And what we found is that across a large number of indicators that we use to measure uh, various aspects of uh, emotional complexity, uh, Japanese were on the one end, Indians and Russians uh, were kind of in between, and Germany too on some of them, and then UK and the US were on the very bottom. So that is, uh, they didn't uh, report that much complexity relatively to these other countries. And that's and that I guess could go back to some of the other things we've been talking about, like differentiation, right, and um, emotional dialectal dialectism. Is that is that the difference? Uh, yeah. So basically, uh, this is of course very preliminary because whenever you find cultural differences, you there are twenty different ways you can explain why there are cultural differences. So much more is needed. But so far, um, we have some evidence that. Uh, and it uh, supports our theory. Our theory is that um, basically in this uh, Western countries, such as UK and the US, and we also found in another study evidence for Canada and uh, Australia, in, in these Western countries, you have um, a notion of emotions, a lay view of emotions that is sort of originating from inside of you. It's like who you are. It's internal. And so it's very important to be very if, if you have this view of emotion, it's very important to be very consistent and uh, not uh, to be sort of this wishy-washy, uh, I feel, have mixed feelings. Because you need to know what you're feeling. That's kind of the model of emotions that is encouraged in our society in, the, in North America, for instance. Uh, in contrast to that, in Japan, or to some extent India and Russia, you have views of uh, the emotions as being part of the social fabric. So it's, uh, your emotions are not necessarily um, defining who you are. Uh, what is defining who you are the social relationships with other people. So you're much more tuned to um, others in your social environment. And when you look then at, at the social environment, 
you may see it sometimes that, well, you may be feeling this at this moment, but these other people seem to be feeling something else too. That makes you start start to appreciate uh, the various emotional experiences that may be happening, even though uh, you may be sort of feeling sadness, you may see that somebody else is not necessarily feeling sadness at the same time. Hmm. It really leads to a more complex representation of emotion. So that's where our theory is sort of coming in. We think that um, this culture, such as Japan, India, Russia, they have this greater focus on other people, um, more socially oriented instead of inward, uh, personally oriented. And that enables them in turn to see the emotions in a more complex way. Is is the complexity reflective of the stress that you feel? Like, is it easier for those that are more socially, um, emotionally focused? Are they more able to heal quickly or easier versus those that are more introspective? Or, inter- or independent in their uh, evaluation yeah. of emotion? Um, that's a very interesting question. So well, to some extent, uh, there is some evidence, not uh, conducted by us, but by others, showing that those people who, uh, including North America, in the United States and in Canada, those people who focus really on reflecting on the experiences and repeatedly go through crunching through negative stressful events again and again that they are at the um, the end of the spectrum in the sense that they are more likely to be subject to depression uh, other mental health problems it's not a very healthy strategy yeah uh, so there there's definitely indication that uh, for Westerners, it is in, uh, ironically maladaptive to focus so much on the self. Yeah. Yet, nevertheless, our society tells us to do so. This is the, because of the great uh, cultural norms we live in. Man, Igor, you've got to get on this. This is huge. This is big. I mean, this is really important to know, right? Yes. I mean, it, and, and it sounds like you're you're really just getting into it as a. I mean, it sounds like the the entire you know field of um, and focus on emotion is it's kind of it's it's newer than than I guess a lot of other fields in therapy and psychology. Well, it has been uh, central to uh, uh, to psychotherapy and to psychology in general, but um, it uh, certainly this kind of cross cultural work is relatively new and definitely more is needed to uh, to incorporate a more sort of holistic perspective on how our macrocultural society may be informing what is considered good, how we feel, and so on. Well, Dr. Igor Igor Grossman, we appreciate you. And um, keep up the great work at the University of Waterloo. We'll continue to look for more of your writings, and uh, we thank you so much for being here. We'll take a break, folks. Come back and talk about an an emotionally uh, stable, you know, conversation stick with us folks we're going to be talking with our good buddies down at byu sports nation this is the matt townsend show we'll be right back welcome back friends to the matt townsend show uh dr matt here your coach your guide on the side Hope all is well with you. Uh, here's the deal. We're not going to be able to get to our good buddies at BYU Sports Nation today. Because, you know, 
having a little technical difficulty. But I thought, okay, we got, well, there's a lot we could be talking to them about. And uh, there seemed to be this incredible convergence that went on between the sports um, world and the mental health world. And I thought this could be very beneficial. So have you ever worn one of those heart trackers across your chest before, Jeffrey? I did once, and then uh, it just got lost in my closet, and every once in a while we can hear it beeping. Really? Yeah. So I don't know if there's something living in there. Yeah. Or So what about the day that we have our uh, where our clothing actually could serve us as like a health detector? For example, a company has now come out with um, a, a brassiere. The man's ear? It, it's, a, it's actually a female brassiere. And, um, but it is embedded in the brassiere is a heart rate variability tracker that can actually determine when you're getting too high strung. So it would actually track your heart rate and then it would vibrate and kind of give you a signal that you need to bring it down a notch. Hmm. Okay. The company's called the Vi- it's the Vitali Bra, and it embeds the sensors just like your heart monitors that you use when you were running track or whatever, um, or like you have to pass your your junior high tests. The device uses algorithms to understand and recognize patterns in the upper diaphragm, so it can probably te- detect your breathing, how quickly you're breathing, how high. So if you're just wearing it at work, and all of a sudden you're getting stressed out, and you're talking faster, and you're getting in an argument. Bzz, bzz, it gives you a little buzzer, and then it tells you to ow tells you to take a few deep breaths or to check your stress level. I think it's a great idea. I would love to hook up couples wearing these devices, uh, a bro and a bra, and then they could talk. And then if it got too the high, couple or the yeah. the clothing? No, the the couple could talk. I see. And they and then if they start getting too messed up and angry with each other. Just a gentle shock, like an electrocuting, I don't know, maybe, yeah, taste it, ow, okay, I'm sorry, and then (laughs) then we solve the problem. Have you ever used electric shock therapy? No, I haven't, but I've had clients that have gone through it, and it changed them, like they had severe depression, though, and they went to have shock therapy, and it was... It's traumatic. And every time an alarm went off, they wept. Yeah. And that little cute little theme doesn't come on, remember. No, they just get shocked. So thank heavens for that. Uh, Sports bra can help you now understand when you're getting too stressed. And they need a bro. They need a version for the man. You know, a sports tee. T-shirt. It seems like that would be a bad idea, like, in a sporting environment. Yeah. No, yeah, you don't want because you would always no. be stressed, right? No, but now they're moving it out of it. That way, if you if you have a heart condition or you know, I think it's just it would make you more aware if all of a sudden your shirt was vibrating and and you now know, okay, we need to end this fight before. And how many times have we seen one of our uh, crazy stories of empty news where boy, if they had just known a little earlier that it was going to get ugly, remember, like people throwing chickens at each other. I mean, it's it's ugly. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) If you could know earlier, it's better. Better to know earlier. A driver who harmed himself with a bat in a road rage attack instantly regrets it. See, this would be the perfect example where you could use this 
tool. Getting angry because of someone else's driving is never wise, and it almost always ends in tears, which is exactly what happened to a passenger who objected to the driver behind him sounding his horn. He got out of the car, armed himself with a baseball bat, stormed over to the car behind to confront the offender before swinging the uh, back the bat and smashing the door. The driver in the car behind did not take well to his car being smashed up, so he got out and reacted with equal violence and ferocity. With a single punch, he knocked out the guy with the baseball bat. You know, so that's why the guy regrets it. You know, he just should have. Anyway, you just yell something back. Hey! Your mother is rude. Something rude like that. Anyway, the people in the car at the back of the line record uh, the entire thing on camera. So luckily, people were able to see it. Moral of the story, of course, life's too short for road rage. And if someone honks, just stay in your car. Have you watched it? No. You should look it up. I don't like violence. To me, it looks a little staged. Does it? But the the punch, I guess, looks real because the you know the impact on the guy looked was, pretty accurate. He, he, but he, then he kind of he, the other guy that that uh, tries to attack him for get, punching his friend gets put in a sleeper hold, and so he the guy like just lets him fall down on the ground and then gets in his car and takes off. Yeah, and what if it wasn't even you that honked? So that's yeah. the other problem. Like, you're going to come beat my car up. <laughs> There's probably some guy three cars back that's like, yeah. ooh. I mean, you want, you want me to honk? I'll honk. Don't get me wrong. I'm not afraid to honk. But this guy just immediately freaked out, got in his truck, and then brought the bat over. Yeah. Come on, people. This is why you need And he was on shocker. his way to an important championship game, too. He could have been. Ooh. Oh, boy. I just saw the video. Holy cow. The guy did get one swing of the bat out, and then the other, the other buddy just kind of gave him, you know, the old five knuckle. How many knuckles? Discount. Yeah, discount. <laughs> and then the other two were wrestling. You know what? Come on, life's too short. We don't need this. Instead, you need to buy the the bro, that wonderful brazier that will electrocute you when you're overstimulated and keep you from making mistakes like that. Unbelievable. As if life isn't crazy enough. Come on. We've we've got, for crying out loud, scorpions on airplanes. We've got to unite. I'm tired <laughs> of these mother-loving scorpions on airplanes. On this highly discounted flight. Yeah. It ain't pretty. We always like to end the show with a hero story. And our hero today is a Wisconsin police officer who's going to donate a kidney to an eight-year-old boy that she just met. Police officer in Rock County, Wisconsin, is going above and beyond her oath to protect and serve by donating her kidney to eight-year-old boy that she just met. Officer Lindsay Bidorf of the Milton Police Department was browsing Facebook in early December when she came across a post by a mother in Janesville, Wisconsin, who made a public plea for potential kidney donors for her eight-year-old son, Jackson Arneson. Bidorf didn't know the family, but she was moved by the mother's post. Jackson was born with a kidney condition called posterior urethral valves, and his family always knew that one day he would need a transplant. After years of testing determined that the family and friends weren't a match, his mother, Christy Gall, turned to social media, begging, really, for somebody to donate a kidney 
Um, her Facebook post was shared nearly 1,500 times. I always knew these days would come. It's just so hard when you are here. I have reached out before. I'm just trying again to see if anyone can find it out there, um, if anyone's interested in being tested to help our child. This would be a very best gift we could receive. Well, anyway, Officer Bidorf did so, and uh, she was a good test. She was a match, they found out. I'm pretty set in my ways, so if I set my mind to something, Bidorf said, there's really nothing that's going to stop me from doing this. That was it, and so she did it. So, Officer Bidorf, thank you. Lindsay Bidorf from the Milton Police Department, you are the hero of the day on the Matt Townsend Show. Remember, too, though, sometimes you just need to ask, right? And uh, people will go out of their way to make stuff happen, but you got to let them know st- what your needs are. And then you got to have people like Off- Officer Bidorf who will step up. That's the show, my friends. We'll be back again tomorrow to give you more hope in life. It's not as bad as it may seem, especially when we're in it together. Until tomorrow, let's make it a great one. Let's take care of each other. We'll talk again tomorrow.